0: Hey guys, what's up? It is week 236. i will got a bunch of movies to cover for you, so let's hop right into this. The first one is from Severn Films. It's from 1987, a glorious year in horror films. And uh, this is one of them. This is Retribution by Guy Magar. And uh, this is his debut film. So I had seen this one uh, years back when Code Red put out a DVD, then later they would put out a Blu-ray, and uh, I actually picked up the uh, German import because I missed the Code Red, and you guys know if you miss a Code Red Blu-ray, usually it just costs millions of dollars to get, Uh, exaggeration, clearly. So when Severin announced they were releasing this as part of their mid-sale, was it a mid-Black Friday sale, I was pretty excited. I knew that uh, it had kind of a a reputation for being crazy and gory and weird, and I just hadn't revisited it in a very long time. I remember uh it being kind of like long in the tooth a little bit. <laughs> And very weird, and uh, 1987. So I was like, that's pretty much my, my memory of it. So so, and I put this bad boy in. I was just amazed how good it looked, how they remastered it. This uh, it came in th- uh, two different editions here. It had the uh, unrated edition, which is what I was used to seeing on DVD and uh, and whatnot, and then uh, the uncut Dutch version, which is basically they insert about uh, 30 seconds of gore footage that is not released anywhere else in the world except on a Dutch VHS or something like that. So that it's like uh, standard def inserts. It doesn't really hurt the film that bad I mean as far as like uh, quality it's not that distracting it's obvious but not it's not that distracting and it's kind of crazy that we get to see it so I went with the Dutch version because I had never actually seen that version of the film. So, uh, Retribution. So, what I really want to say about this one is it's super zany, super weird, and fairly unique, although it does have kind of the plot of a couple movies that I, um, I I've, another one from 87, um, in, in a similarity kind of, like Angel Heart, if you guys seen that, the idea or the premise of Angel Heart, which I don't want to necessarily spoil, but I kind of did right there. And uh, what, what's the other one I'm thinking of, where there's uh, kind of like the Duality within or along those lines that, that kind of happens, but this one's a little bit different. Kind of two souls within one body. So, we have this troubled artist who uh, lives in a what? And um, I want to say it's L.A. to be honest. It's definitely that kind of area. He lives in this apartment complex filled with a bunch of zany, weird characters in line with the Sentinel or something like that, where everybody's kind of strange but not dangerous like the Sentinel. Uh, and and they all seem to be friendly towards him. In the very beginning of the film, he tries to commit suicide in a Dramatic uh, kind of way, um, jumping off the building. He survives. And um, during that time, something kind of traumatic and demonic or i would say not demonic but evil supernatural happens to him um and ever since he comes out of that suicide attempt um his psychiatrist can't help him his uh kind of like uh girlfriend i would say somewhat and suzanne snyder from uh, return of the dead part two and killer clowns from outer space who's like this prostitute girlfriend is kind of like trying to help him but he has this uh he's having these horrible nightmares and these kind of visions and what's happening is he's going out at night almost seemingly possessed and killing these people, and it starts to kind of come together to be related, and it becomes a crazy revenge story. The idea in itself is completely bonkers, and uh, as it goes on, it gets crazier and crazier, and I really caught myself enjoying all that kind of stuff. Um... Though, though there is a point in the movie about an, it's an hour and, what, 40-some minutes, and there's a point where I'm like, this is a little long, but the ending comes in. The third act of this movie comes in like a, a, a bowl, and it's just uh, it just wins me over. Um, the effects are one of the kind of driving points to this movie. The gore effects are amazing. They're over the top. They're grueling. The murder scenes in here are crazy. Um, and the lead guy's performance, uh, Dennis Linscom, who is a character actor in a bunch of bigger movies and smaller roles, is, is taking the lead here. And you'll see that often. You'll have a character actor who's in big movies into small and smaller roles, do a very good job and everything, get a lead role in kind of a, a smaller budget movie or independent movie, even it still happens nowadays, think the final interview with Granger Hines by Fred Vogel. I'm using that as an example because I know kind of first hand with that. But um just knowing Fred uh so That happens a lot. And usually when it does happen, you can count on a very quality performance. And and Retribution, that's exactly what we have here. Uh, Linscombe comes across as an artist type, but as more of an awkward type too, and a tortured type. Uh, And that's not really easy to do, to have like kind of a nerdy, kind of awkward presence, but also be... Likable and and um, have people actually care for him, and yet somehow when he has that switch, be creepy as shit. Um, yeah, this is a good movie, and it's, it's uh, the remaster makes the colors pop because there's lots of crazy supernatural stuff and glowing eyes and stuff. All that stuff pops wonderfully, and I caught myself just kind of tra- entranced by all the the visuals in the movie. It, it's a more visual uh, pleasing movie than I would ever suspect to be honest. And it had been years since I watched it, and I always was like, oh yeah, that movie is one of those ones that. people... People always thought got no love and then I felt like it got too much love for what it was now watching it back I'm like no this is a really good movie and it's right at that cusp for me of being a a great movie it is a hidden gem I would say but it's not like you know that level of like a a eight at eight and a half out of ten or but it's it's almost there for me it's really good um I I quite enjoy it and the special features on here are quite impressive as well I popped these in and it just seemed to never end um I I have to read off the back but we have audio commentary ...with the director Guy Magar, writing wrongs, interview with co-writer Lee Wasserman, and uh, he does talk about, I think he's the one who breaks down the production and the release and some of the things changing and whatnot, shock therapy, interview with actress Leslie Wing, who plays a psychiatrist, uh, Angel Heart, interview with uh, actress Suzanne Snyder, whose I've always enjoyed, she seems generally very sweet... Um, Santa Marie, Mother of God, Help Me, which is a phrase in the movie that if you have seen, you won't forget. It's repeated a lot and quite uh, memorable. an interview with actor Mike Muscott, who is a character actor and I like his story. It's nice to see these kind of like small character actors get to tell their story and how they got started and everything like that. Um, setting the score, interview with soundtrack composer Alan Howarth, who came worked on a couple John Carpenter films as well. It's a very good score. Visions of Vengeance, interview with special effects artist John Eggert. And I, uh, egg I said the special effects were top-notch and for a low-budget film for sure the art of getting even interview with artist barry fair and he talks about uh, making the paintings for the film and whatnot. There's a that element in here as well because the main character is an artist living in Oblivion. Interview with production designer Rob Wilson King. And we also have Bingo, a student short film by Guy Megar, which kind of has like this dark kind of social commentary in there about having a bingo and ending up kind of like drawing, I think, like the wrong card stuff like that. Maybe like the uh, Shirley Jackson's Lottery. If I, I was getting the impression on that a little bit, but uh, I, I have to mention this, uh, which is what also kind of won me over. I should mention that a uh, Hulk's. Axton is that his name? The uh the uh actor from gremlins I always say his name. Yeah, Hulk Axton, the actor from gremlins and a few other things is in this movie as well. He's good in this. Um, um so Jeremy walked to me and he said, "I don't like American John Candy." And I was like, "Come on, come on." I mean, he's very good in the movie, but it's just a, it's just kind of a funny joke. The one thing I will say about this is the ending is great. Like um emotional too, and I didn't expect that rewatching this. So, it kind of is a repeat of something that we saw earlier. And it's really devastating where all the characters are witnessing something really traumatic and and then, like, uh, dramatic and and sad. And there's one character that just sees the scene. And I was just like, I was like, am I getting teary eyed during 1987's Retribution? I just I, I really was. It was touching. And then fucking scary at the very end before the credits so good one good movie man Uh, hidden gem for sure 87 I know I I say 85 is a really strong year in horror 80 81 82 87 74 78 there's lots of great years in horror Um, but I think 87 Uh, is one of them I think there was just lots of really cool stuff in 87 uh, for the 80s that it's kind of an underrated year for the 80s I mean people say the early 80s but when we start getting they always kind of bad about the latter 80s but I think 87 was that like really strong year within the late 80s so anyways Retribution great stuff Check it out from Severn Films. Okay, this next one from Arrow Films is Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. And you, you guys can tell I'm kind of giddy, kind of excited to talk about this one. <laughs> this is a movie that I saw for years just kind of floating around. Um, I'm trying to look at my VHS shelf over here and think if I had it. I, I'm pretty sure at one point I had this bad boy on a VHS. I know I have uh, like a, a crappy, like bootleg DVD kind of deal that they released, Gray Market DVD it looked terrible. And uh, I, I never did watch the movie. I knew that Paulie Shore was in it. I uh, knew some vague things about it. It just sound, it sounded kind of weird, late 80s movie. Um, and then when I saw that Arrow was putting out, I was excited. I was like, oh, this this movie is probably going to be very fun and different and stuff like that. And just bonkers. I saw the director, Richard Friedman, or Friedman, uh, And um, I saw that he did Scared Stiff, which is a ridiculous movie, and Doom Asylum, which Arrow put out both of these movies. Those movies are both ridiculous. Doom Asylum I have a history with of being the most nonsensical slasher ever, and uh, I've kind of grown a fondness for Doom Asylum. Um, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. Okay, um, this is the one I think that the actual the writer on here was very unhappy that they changed the name. The makers of this movie were very unhappy that they put Eric's Revenge at the end of this. So uh, when the movie starts, I knew that uh, Pauly Shore was in it. I was like, okay, yes, Pauly Shore is in this film. And uh, then I started seeing the other credit uh, people pop up, Morgan Fairchild, okay, okay, kind of typical. And then Ken Forey, I was like, I did not know Ken Forey was in this movie. And then I see Gregory Scott Cummings, and I was so happy to see his name. This guy has been popping up for the last five or six years for me everywhere. It started with It's Always Sunny. And I was like, oh, that guy's really funny. I should look him up. And then I realized he was Ryan the Goon from Cliffhanger. And I say this story every time I talk about this guy just because I love this guy now. He's he's great. And then he just started popping up in all these movies. I remember him in hack a Lantern and Blood Games and Danger USA. He's just this kind of fun character actor who kind of he plays like kind of a a baddie uh, most of the time. So I was like, okay, we're in for something fun. Uh, The plot of the movie, you guys all know the Phantom of the Opera, but this is the Phantom of the Mall. So we're going to take the aspect of, you know, the consumerism, opening of a new mall, corrupt politician who wants this mall to be, uh, he has aspirations to be a politician. He's friends with the mayor. He wants this mall to do very well at no matter what cost. So you immediately are like, that guy's a bad guy. That guy's the mayor from Jaws, right? Uh, I'm not going to close the mall no matter what. Uh, So what happens is um, a friend uh, that kind of like the main characters here had a friend, uh, her boyfriend got burnt in a a tragic accident is all what we know of a year ago and kind of the body was never found. Uh, They they assumed he was dead. So they're building this new mall and all of them got jobs in the mall and everything and it's this big ordeal and uh, fairly quickly there is a phantom in the mall who starts to pick off security guards and kill other people and has a fascination with the, the lead girl. And we know exactly who Phantom of the Mall is because it's Eric's revenge and guess what? Eric was the girl Friend, the boyfriend of the girl, you know, uh, who, who he burned in the fire. So it's not really a secret or anything like that. But uh, we see the phantom oftentimes practicing his martial arts uh, and behind, like, is, is the secret lair and stuff. The, the kills are pretty over the top, eyes getting pulled out and, and ridiculous nonsense. But then there's these crazy action set pieces of Ken Forey and Gregory Scott Cummings, like, chasing the young kids and everything like that. And I was just like, what the hell is this? But uh, I, I really enjoyed myself. It's super cheesy, super. Super, very much a product of the late '80s, early '90s kind of deal. Uh, but the kills are satisfying. There's a lot more stunts and action than one would suspect, um, like and it's done professionally. Um, the characters are goofy and silly. Um, a lot of people get their comeuppets, but uh, at the end of the day, I was just really happy to watch this one, and I was uh, really impressed with what they did. It was kind of a blind spot. I had heard a little bit about it, but uh, you know when a company like Arrow or Vinegar Syndrome picks something up, it's always piques my interest. Like, oh, there, there's got to be something to it. And I know a lot of people are like, a lot of these companies, polish turds, yada, 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 but most of the time, I, I've watched so many movies that when they uh, when they pick up something I have not watched and I'm releasing it, I'm, I'm always very interested because I'm like at the very least it's going to look amazing and uh, most of the time it, it has a, a certain quirkiness or it's very good um, and I would say fan of them Mall, It's it's very entertaining. And like, I, you know, a lot of people, it's one of those movies that you put on with a group and everybody's going to have a great time, but it does have these moments of like genuinely good filmmaking. I mean, like stunts and stuff that I was just like, this is way more expensive and over the top than I expected. Um, Pauly Shore, you know, he's comic relief in the movie and he does a good job. Um, there's one scene where he like lures the security guard out of a room by showing his ass. I was like, that's strange. That's <laughs> it's just, like, just a weird ass scene in there. Uh, pun intended, I guess. Um, but yeah, this, this is fun. And the idea is cool too, especially for the late 80s because I mean we had 78 consumerism mall zombies all that deal with Dawn of the Dead and then we get like 10 years later and it's like why well, not just do the Phantom of the Opera in the mall that's kind of a fun idea and I, I've been kind of a sucker for a lot of the renditions of the Phantom like a, at least as uh, I, I've watched quite a few and I like Hammers quite a bit so I like the idea of the Phantom and I like the original book too um, but yeah so uh, the, the lead guy who plays the Phantom one of the, is actually from Popcorn and I think Popcorn and Phantom of the Mall kind of share some DNA if that. and Popcorn's a pretty fun movie from 91. Uh, So not too far apart from each other. This bad boy, the coolest thing about this is it's loaded with features so there's actually three cuts of the movie. We have the theatrical cut, we have the TV cut which adds scenes and takes away some stuff and then we have the fan cut spelled with a -A P-H-A-N and that is a hybrid uh, the composite has everything and that's the cut I watched, which I am so happy that Arrow's doing stuff like this because we got the composite cut with Blood Rage aka Nightmare at Shadow Woods, and the first time I saw Blood Rage, I saw like a cut version years back, and it just wasn't very good, like I just couldn't make ends meets, what the hell was going on, there was no gore, it was just, and then when I saw the Arrow, when they put it out years later, I was like I remember that movie not being very good, and then like seeing all of it intact in and the, comp- uh, the, the, um, like the, fan- the edit they made, I was like, this is actually pretty great, so I mean, it was really cool to see all that stuff put in now the quality isn't as great as the theatrical you know um some of the quality dips a little bit in that fan edit stuff but not by much so as far as the special features are concerned there was like a nice beefy making of on here um that had interviews with um, a lot of the people involved including with there's an audio commentary but Michael Felcher does the um um what is it? Yeah, he narrates the thing. Or not narrates. Uh, geez, he moderates the thing. And we have an audio commentary with the composer and the producer. And then we have, this is what I was talking about. The Shock Till You Drop the Making of Phantom of the Mall. Brand new making of documentary fe- featuring interviews with director Richard uh, Friedman. Uh, screenwriter Scott J. Uh, Sinned, uh, How do you say that? Uh, Synied. And Tony uh, Mitchellman. Actors Derek Rydell and Gregory Stott Cum- Cummings. Filmmaker Tony Caden. And special effects creator Matthew Mungle and I actually really enjoyed seeing that because like I like the the making of's when they put them all together and cut it and they tell like a story and um, although I think that uh, Gregor Scott Cummings kind of is in the same line with me he's like you know it's just a fun movie or whatever I think people are finding it and enjoying it that's very cool he's a very down to earth guy he seemed very cool and like the director and the writers and stuff they seem like they obviously were a little annoyed with what happened to it and, it, and I rightfully so I mean they changing the name to because fan of the Mall that sounds really cool but then with Eric's Revenge they were like well now it seems like a sequel and people aren't going to watch it because this, it was one of these deals where they got screwed over on the distro and, and they just kind of screwed up the release and the, 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 that kind of stuff it seems like initially but uh, it's very nice that we live in a world where Blu-ray and all that kind of stuff and all uh, these like stuff can get a re-release and get rediscovered and I know this is kind of a semi-cult film I heard people bring it up or people had seen it uh, and then we have the Vandals go to the mall and interview with uh, the, uh, the punk band the Vandals and uh, the creation of the film's theme music which was nice to see alternate and deleted scene and then uh, yeah we have original script uh which is awesome so yeah this is a two cut uh two uh Um, blu-ray set here so yeah we got two different cuts of the movie three different cuts of the movie which is insane and nice hard box here with a poster and a nice booklet um that's just awesome it's legitimately awesome so anyways check out Phantom of the mall eric's revenge and if you like stuff like scared stiff and doom asylum i would put this above both of those to be honest i think it's a little bit more fun a little bit more polished um yeah um and i actually enjoy all three of the movies so yeah check it out Okay, this next one I had just kind of seen in, in, in passing and didn't really know much about it. This is from Aero Films. This is Sailor Suit and The Machine Gun. So this is from 1981, and this is kind of sold as like a Yakuza parody. And I've seen a handful of Yakuza movies from the 70s, you know, The Battle Without Honors, The New Battle Without Honors, those kind of movies like that. And I've enjoyed every single one of them. Um, they do bleed together a little bit, kind of like when you watch a lot of like samurai or gangster movies or anything like that. If you watch a lot of the same genre, you have a lot of the same actors popping up. This one definitely stands out being completely different. Um, The idea is insane, Um, but yeah, it's played fairly straight, although there is a a touchy, like, I cuteness to it i would say and, but there is some sentimentality and some emotional level so what we have here is um a yakuza leader is dying and he runs this gang he tells his uh four kind of guys that um i want you to put my um nephew in charge um and this uh meanwhile we have this young girl the student uh very innocent very nice her who hangs out and we're like her best has like three best friends who are boys who are always kind of chasing after her. and um Essentially, her father has died, who happens to be that Yakuza leader's nephew. So uh, he was involved in some, some shady stuff, possibly. And what happens is this young woman comes to live with her and says, I was a friend of your father's, and she seems a little off. And they start a relationship. But then the four Yakuza people come, and they realize that our gang's going to end, and we have to die in like, kind of like a, um, a, a, you know an honor system if you don't take over the gang. Because although your father was next in line... You're, you're the next uh, in, in, in the lineage or whatever so she reluctantly agrees because these men are going to die in a blaze of glory and throughout the movie she kind of learns who they all are and they there's like four of them and they all kind of establish their characters and get to know her and get her closeness and she has to go among the Yakuza ranks and the big bosses and everything it creates awkward situations where they belittle her and all that kind of stuff like that In the extended version there's actually an attempted rape at her and honor and stuff like that and that extended version seems to be the scenes are longer and then there's a couple other scenes that are added and the one I just mentioned and stuff like that, so it seems to be have a little bit of a darker touch. But uh, so, so like really, there's like a lot of relationship between her and the uh, the Yakuza men and forming a, a relationship and a bond with all of them. And these four already had that bond. And and by and when people start to die within the movie, right before they usually die, they have these like touching moments where you get like kind of a, a look into them and and you get to know them, which I kind of appreciated. Although it becomes kind of telegraphed to who's going to die next after a while, but I, I do... Enjoy seeing characters I really enjoy in kind of uh, these Japanese gangster flicks. I will think of Katano in some of his uh, his gangster flicks. I think that they established the characters very well. At, um, what is that, Sonantine? Uh, before they died, I, I really felt genuinely heart uh, like gut punched. When, and I did this one too. I, I there's this moment that reminds me of kind of the scene of Young Guns when Charlie visits the prostitute and he says, "Ma'am, I just want you to hold me." And it just like shows this like this kind of uh, innocence to him or that. That one could possibly, you think, maybe that actually is his mother, and you, but you see this innocence to it, that character, and something like that happens in here, too. Um, although it does seem a little bit more rapey in this one, I would say that I don't think that was the intent exactly, but I, I think the intent was more for the innocence quality, and I, I thought that that was um, really touching. Uh, a couple moments like that in here um there's some when the the way the action shot it's not um I think that anybody who had some hang ups on this movie, it would be probably when there is there's some action and some really cool scenes, and some good bad guys, of course, some great bad guys, especially this this horrible villain in a wheelchair who's like performing like, like like organ harvesting and stuff he's just a monster tells this great story involving a landmine. But um, just when the action, there is good action, but it's not like an all-out revenge or bloodshed ending. And I think that that stuff, the way it's shown and shot, would be a little disappointing to some people. Although it is very competently shot and entertaining, um, and the end has like this really nice touch, and it comes together with it. I think so. Uh, with the kind of the voiceover and all that stuff, I thought was kind of kind of beautiful. Uh, there's a great theme music to the movie that will get stuck in your head, um, and I quite enjoyed that as well. This one I, I thought was really good, and I, I really enjoyed it and it was different. Um they they call it a yakuza parody or kind of playing on those, but it also can stand on its own, you know. It's not just like a, a parody movie that I'll be talking about later this uh, in this video silence of the Hams or something. It's not that, okay? It's playing on the tropes and and making it and doing its own thing and being a genuinely good movie at the same time. Oh, I should mention some of the features on here because there is uh, a couple on here too. So, uh, yeah, besides the original, the theatrical, there's the extended version which runs close to 2 hours and 10 minutes, uh, I believe, so it's quite long. The other version is just under 2 hours. So then we have Girls Guns and Gangsters, uh, Sheena Soma and Sailor Suit and Machine Gun. An exclusive new 50-minute documentary featuring actor Akira Umado, film scholar Chika uh, Kinsasinto, uh, Soma biographer Tetsuo Kamura, and Sailor suit assistant director Koji in um, Inyokido discussing the making of the film, its director, and its legacy. Um, yes, and uh, this this movie actually, um, I think it spawned a t- two different TV series and possibly a movie made in 2016. So kind of the same story. So uh, yeah, it, it does have quite uh, a bit of following uh, following to it and a legacy. So yeah, that is a Sailor Suit and Machine Gun. Or is it Sailor Suit and Machine Gun? I want to make sure I want to make Sailor Suit Girl and Machine Gun. It's just Sailor Suit and Machine Gun. Yeah. Okay, this next one needs no introduction, or really no review for me. This is kind of a legendary movie for sure, and it is Italian horror, so why not uh, check out Dario Gento's *Deep Red* in 4K? So I had covered this one before. Uh, it had been a while since I watched it, but I watched the uh, kind of like the middle cut, not the international cut, which isn't the complete director's cut. This time, I decided to watch the director's cut, which runs about two hours and six minutes in 4K. So yeah. Um, this this doesn't really need an introduction, but this is kind of the one that put... I know Dario was put on the map with with the Crystal Plumage, but this is the one that most film scholars, most film fans... Um you know they think it's his best film deep red 1975 starring david Hemmings and daria nicolodi uh I, I recently covered uh david Hemmings' movie last week it's nothing mama it's just a game and kind of registered i always thought he was a good actor but i registered how great he was he was also in the 1970 movie fragment of fear which he's top notch in and this one it's kind of like is uh is also an amazing a great role daria nicolodi obviously was married to argento and she was kind of a driving force behind a lot of his movies uh you know helped him out collaborator. She's fucking excellent in this movie, too. So, uh, watching the two-hour and six-minute version uh, in 4K, um, it was quite a treat. Um, The depth looked amazing. Like, the compositions looked even better than usual. Um, I mean, the framing in this movie is fantastic. When we have kind of like David Hemmings and his friend standing in front of the fountain, that's some great stuff here. But um, the depth of the field looked really good. I mean, like, everything was crystal and stuff like that. I was just kind of amazed you could see the detail on, like, brick buildings and shit, like, from such a far distance. But, hey, that's 4K. So, the HDR, everything was very good on this HDR was top-notch, the, the the surround sound stuff worked very well. Um, you know, the plot of Deep Red is kind of like one of these, uh, Dario's kind of movies fell, although they were kind of exaggerated, you know, Four Flies and Grey Velvet, like science doesn't really work like that, but you're willing to forgive that kind of stuff like that, in Cat O' Nine Tails and Four Flies and Grey Velvet, and the, everything's kind of hyper, you know, you know it's, it's stylized and stuff, so stuff like that, you know, perfectly not... Uh, Makes sense, but it just works fine. In Deep Red, there's actually like a genuine supernatural element in this. But it still feels very much like the plot to bird with the crystal plumage to be kind of the same elements and same themes and everything like that. Even killer motives and and the, the hiding of somebody else doing something. I, I feel like the movies have a lot of similarities and you can genuinely tell this is a Daria movie. I mean, like all his movies, he's very good at that being different, yet the same and kind of taking it to the next step. Um, I mean, Deep Red, what what can I say? This isn't my favorite personal Argento movie, but I can see why it is most people's favorite Argento movie. Besides, you know, sometimes it's Suspiria or Deep Red. It's one of the two, right? And then you yeah, have the oddballs uh, that like Tenenbrey, which is me, uh, but I think a lot of people like that. Those are kind of like the big three, and then you start getting weird. We be like Inferno, Phenomena, and then uh, yeah. But but I mean, he's such a, uh, a crazy director, and it's, it's just a, like the cinematography and stuff. The, the I really like what he does in this one, to be honest, with the, with the kind of like character, mo- the, the killer motivations and stuff. It's just crazy. As far as like the detective storyline, it's always such a weird, like there. there's a lot of stuff that you kind of just like let go, like forgive. Like, well, they found this, uh, they, they realized that this mural was drawn on this and, and they had the the kind of the rhyme that the psychic heard. So they're going into that nursery rhyme and in that nursery rhyme, there's a photo of this building and they're going to look for that building and it's going to lure to the mural. And it's just like, it. it, it you get the steps there to find to solve the crime but there's lots of like you got lucky here you got very lucky here but i guess when you're watching a movie like this you just kind of have to forgive that kind of stuff and just let yourself be kind of entranced by the film the score is amazing right we have goblin here and it's very like it feels like it plays like i mean all scores play with the the stuff that's happening but this one even more so especially with like david hemmings crawling on the side of the building like that that whole scene like i never noticed how crazy the music was and just that particular scene where he's falling and it's like bam it just like goes and like like almost like uh like Splatterhouse three music like obviously this would inspire Splatter like th- this came first but it just reminded me very much of like the best kind of video game music I've ever heard just in that one particular scene. Um again in the beginning of this movie what's very cool is that they show you the killer. Um and it's one thing that I heard people complain about Bird with the Crystal Plumage like they show you something that's not there it's like no it was obscured to where you couldn't and he remembered wrong when he thought back on it and they're like that's a cheat. And Deep Red he's like you think that's a cheat I'm gonna show you what the fuck's Happening, and it's your fault if you can't see it. No cheat there. No cheat there, which I thought was kind of brilliant. The kills are are fairly graphic, of course. Um, the of course when uh the friend gets uh, drugged by the car, that is definitely telegraphed in the very beginning, and kind of a nice way you see it go by. Um, and uh, so so this thing, it's a, it's a classic movie. It's one of those ones where. Like, if somebody doesn't like it, it's like, you know what? I think it's kind of been, like, spoken of. No one really gives a shit um, if somebody dislikes it. it, It's found its place in history, you know? Like, there's so many movies like that now. It's like, somebody's like, just watch Deep Red, don't like it. And everybody's like, yeah, go away. Like, there's just so much of that. Like, I, I don't even know how to say it about, like... sir. And this is one of them. Like, you know, I, I would put a lot of movies in that category now. Like, and I always bring that up when people's like, I just saw Change, so it's overrated. People are just like, yeah, go away. Go away, kid, don't bother me. And I don't mean that as a young person. It's just kind of that same mentality where it's like, I don't really want to hear people complain about classic movies anymore. Like, I just don't get it. I just don't care. Like, because when I don't like something that's a classic, I know people are like, well, it's your... Pay, it's your... Yes, but a lot of times I take a step back and I look... What am I missing? I must be wrong here. And most of the time I come around on them, I find things that I do enjoy and it's sometimes not every movie's for everybody and again I will say that um, but it just doesn't mean it's bad. I mean like this like I said this isn't my favorite agento but I don't think it's bad. I think it's a classic. So, I mean, who, it doesn't really matter what, what the, the the opinion of something. And the, the history of the films also fascinating, all that kind of stuff. This thing has t- so many features, I don't know how anyone would watch them all. What I really liked about it uh, was the uh, Troy Haworth and uh, Nathaniel. Jeez, um, I always mix up his name. I want to make sure I get it right. Uh, Nathaniel Thompson, audio commentary on there. Um, this does have both versions of the movie on here. It has the uh, long version, the original version, and the export version which is shorter. But uh, we also have, there's both both versions are Adobe uh, Vision HDR compatible, which is awesome. Um, and there's also, what else is on here? I want to make sure I read all these stuff. We have an archival commentary by Argento expert Thomas Rostock. Almost three hours of new interviews with members of the cast and crew, including co-writer director Dario Argento, actors uh, Macha Murley, uh, Gabriel Levy, um, Jacoby uh, Morani, and Linzo uh, Capagliaccio, Argento's original choice for the role of Marcus Daly, who's David Heming's character, production designer Angelo uh, Locano, composer Claudio Simonetti, and archival footage of actress Daria Nicolotti. RIP. So, and then on the other disc we have um, Introduction to the Film by Claudio Semenetti, um, Profondo Giallo, an archival visual essay by Michael McKenzie featuring in-depth appreciation of Deep Red, its themes, and its legacy. Archival interview with Dario, Dar- uh, Daria Nicolodi, Claudio Semenetti, and longtime Argento collaborator Luigi Cazzi. So this thing is freaking loaded. It has a book. It has a nice hard case. This is the limited edition version. So if you like Deep Red, and I'm sure most Italian horror fans do like Deep Red, then do yourself a favor and grab the the grab the 4K. Like I said, the depth and stuff it looked fantastic. Um, I'm glad all these Argento movies are getting these 4K releases. Uh, it just makes me happy that like the cult movies that and the crazy stuff that I like is getting the 4Ks. And like a lot of people are like, why are my favorite movies? I, I know I'm like, being a dick there, but it's just crazy, man. Horror fans, horror fans will drive. You know, the cult labels and the niche horror fans they really drive the market on this stuff. So that's very cool. But I love all films, so I brace all 4Ks of movies I like. So anyways, deep bread from arrow looks great so check it out okay this next one is from mondo macabro one of the best labels out there and this is the designated victim starring tomas milan who is in like half the spaghetti westerns anybody ever saw and a slew of other movies including don't torture a duckling and um, almost human the umberto Lindsay uh polizio Tetsi, or or crime film however you want to put it he's just in a lot of films he's a very great actor um and he popped up in stuff later on like oz and he was in traffic uh a, a really uh a great actor and uh this is 1971 um yeah, this is one that I had not seen. And right when it kind of starts off, I was like, oh, we're kind of doing a Strangers on the Train, which um, I will admit is a movie that I know the plot a thousand times. I've seen it ripped off a thousand times, but I don't think I've ever seen the original Strangers on a Train, which is horrible to admit. But I will always admit when I have my blind spots. Like I told you, I spent my youth watching uh, low-budget horror films and crazy monster movies and stuff like that. I did not spend my youth watching the classics. I did watch some classics just because they aligned with what I liked already um like crazy like old war films and stuff like that but I didn't watch that many classics so I didn't watch treasures on a train but I can tell you who directed zombie bloodbath 2 Rage of the Undead uh so anyways that's the plot kind of Strangers on the Train I was like oh oh this is very cool um Mama throw Mama from the Train with all use the kind of similar plot or play on it so uh we have Tom Tomas Milan who's like I believe he's like a fashion I don't want to say photographer I think he's a designer in that kind of line of work and uh he's married to a very rich woman who owns like kind of like this you know he does a lot of the hard work in the area but she kind of owns the the stocks and the money and stuff so she's kind of like I guess you know the financial person who has all the money and everything like that in the the relationship uh tomas is actually um cheating on his wife he has a mistress i don't think it's really that hidden of a secret um but he's in he's an, unha- an unhappy marriage, obviously. She's not very happy with it either. But she kind of wants to hold those stocks and that, that over his head. So he's kind of like, he wants to sell. He wants to get out of here. He probably wants to make a bunch of money and just kind of, you know, leave the relationship and everything like that. He's very unhappy. But, you know, she's kind of got him. Uh, so one day when he's out and about with his uh, mistress, uh, he goes to grab this kind of piece of street jewelry that they're selling. And this other guy puts his hand on his hand and they kind of make eye contact and he's very kind of strange uh very gaunt skinny fellow with a mistress as well or a, a girlfriend or you say whatever i don't want to say mistress because i'm just assuming that he's married um but so this guy right away has like kind of the the look at him and he says uh thomas is i Oh, go ahead you take it I, I you can have it but he says no no you you keep this uh you know and Within a couple hours, they run into each other again, and they just constantly are running into each other, so uh, the young man, uh, that he, the, the, the gaunt man decides, you know, this is fate, we should be friends, and they start to talk, and they start to kind of uh, tell their problems, and the gaunt man proposes, you know, you kill my brother, who's a terrible person and all kill your wife and we'll both be happy Tomas thinks about it for a split second but he kind of, no, we can't do that but uh, so he he decides that he has to kind of plan something else, he has to get out of this relationship, he can't be stuck in this kind of world, so he starts to plan these criminal activities to kind of get away scot-free with the money and everything like that and leave his wife, but uh, of course the Gaunt man has other plans and he falls into this kind of this web and everything like that uh, it's really interesting, the acting is great, uh, especially between the two kind of leads here uh the gaunt man i I always come the gaunt man like i'm talking like he's peter cushing or something but he was an actor he's in a a slew of kind of stuff he's very good in it and there's obviously some uh homosexual um tendency between him and and tomas like there's an attraction and he's very feminine acting and stuff like that and uh it's just he's, he's also very like creepy and conniving and stuff and he starts like to pull the strings and do all these awful things but of course you know someone's going to get murdered this is kind of a, a like a thriller and everything like that and uh you, you really got to feel bad for tomas in here even though he's not necessarily the greatest guy on earth um you know the the relationship between him and his wife reminds me a bit of the relationship the guy has in hatchet for the honeymoon with uh, by mario bava but uh the guy in mario bava's movie was actually a, a A very, very bad, like, serial killer crazy person, um, with way more fucked up psychology than this guy, um, but yeah, I, I, like, I don't want to spoil the complete ending, but it's a twist and I love the ending, I thought it worked really well, and I was like, oh shit, that's such a good uh, character turn for the one guy, like, you just really, like, that fits perfectly, that's amazing that's a great, great pick there but, uh, and also, like, the whole fashion uh, photographer, designer, stuff that fits very with the Italian kind of films of the time, I mean, almost all of them either have a school or a fashion element to them, right? I think Strip Nude for Your Killer. I Almost all the Giali have some some models and stuff like that involved with them. So they could probably put a bunch of beautiful people in sexual situations in there, but hey, uh, that's just the way it is. As far as the special features are concerned, we have interview with writer and assistant director Aldo Lotto, who's directed some great films, including Who Saw or Die. Um, interview with uh, Balbazar Clementi, audio commentary by Fragments of Fear, uh, Peter Jimstead, and Rachel Nisbet. Um, exclusive extended version, which is like, I think, five, six minutes long. Longer. maybe it's even longer than that it's about 10 and then we have uh optional you can watch it in english or italian if i am not mistaken, which is very cool i always watch my italian movies in english just because that was the way i was raised and a lot of the actors if they are english speaking you know that's the way it's done. that's how because there's always an international cast but designated victim pretty good stuff uh very entertaining great ending great ending worked very well Okay, these next three I actually watched for the uh, twenty-two shots of moods and horror, so I'm gonna be super quick with them. And I know I always say that, and it's like four hours later, and I'm like, yeah, and the guy walked on the step, but I'm not. I, I really want to be two, three minutes in here because I don't. It's not that I don't have that much to say um, because these are all first time watches for me because it was my director spotlight for Italian Horror Month. And I picked Mario Bava because I, he's one of the best. But there was four horror films for Mario Bava I hadn't watched. And some of them are heavy hitters. So I, I squeezed in The Whip and the Body um, with Christopher Lee. I mean, the idea, I know Christopher Lee also probably did he work in Hercules and the Haunted World with him or something else? Maybe less of a horror film. But uh, Christopher Lee is one of the best ever. I actually love Christopher Lee. Um, and Mario Bava. Lava is one of the best ever. So I was like, how could I have not seen The Whip and the Body? And I hear a lot about this one. Very interesting. Early 60s movie too. So really kind of ahead of its time for themes and stuff like that. So uh, this is a crazy, very, very gothic movie here. We have uh, Christopher Lee returning back to like the castle. His father's there. His brother's there. His brother's just about to get married but his brother's obviously you know interested in someone else Christopher Lee comes back and he was kind of uh, kicked out of this this castle for obvious for horrible things he has a you know a bondage a BDSM side to him where he likes you know to beat women with a whip get off sexually and uh, it seemed like it maybe wasn't a hundred percent one-sided at one point here so he comes back uh, to the this kind of disgust of everybody really nobody's happy um, one of the servants claims that he's the reason that somebody committed suicide her daughter committed suicide so lee comes in and he's just like i want to make amends unfortunately he didn't dub his own voice but it's kind of like a lee impersonator here he was kind of sad that he didn't get to dub his own voice according to tim lucas which i would believe because he does the commentary so uh So pretty soon this movie starts to get really crazy. It becomes like kind of a ghost story, kind of like a bondage thing. And then psychological stuff's going on. I won't spoil too much. Of course, people are going to get murdered. People are going to get whipped. Christopher Lee is going to get saucy. Uh, The lighting's great. The lighting is so good. Like um, the way it's set up in here, the the dark kind of blues and greens and, and darkness and shadows and stuff. I was thinking, man this place just makes me not want to be there in this castle. It's like a beautiful castle, but I literally was like, I don't want to be there. Like, it's cold. It looks creepy. It just looks uninviting. And that's all done by the lighting and the and the cinematography, and it works so well. Um, Lee's fantastic in it. The concepts are great. Um, it has some blood in here, and the ending's great. The ending's a great little twist, a, a great little story in here. So I'll just be very quick with the whip in the body. Uh, it, it's one of Bava's coolest movies. It's different and ahead of its time, too, and to see Lee work with Bava is such a treat, right? And I know we got to work with Vincent Price, too, and one of those uh, Dr. Goldblump or whatever the hell those movies, there's a couple of those movies. <laughs> I've not ever seen those movies yet, though. Um, but yeah, so, that's very cool um, just to see this one. Anyways, I-, I was very happy with it, and it was interesting. And I- It will get better on a rewatch, for sure. It's one of those deals. Okay, the next one is going to be another quickie uh, by- that I'm going to do for Mario Bava, and this is um, Lisa and the Devil. Um, I didn't cover The House of Exorcism, which is a completely different recut film. After the success of The Exorcist, they kind of added, went ahead and used some of the old footage from in The Devil, and they added kind of an element of, like, possession and exorcism within House of Exorcism. Made kind of a completely different film. I really should have watched both versions. I'll watch House of Exorcism next time I watch the movie, but this is a first time watch. This has a fucking Telly Savalas in it, which is uh, great. Love Telly Savalas. I should have mentioned that Luciano Pigazzi was in the last movie, too, because he pops up in Baron Blood, which I'm going to do next. But uh, yeah, anyways, I'm a big Telly Savalas fan. I've loved Telly Savalas since I was 10 years old and watched him as the maggot and the dirty dozen i thought that guy's such a creep i love it um and we all run out like it's halloween um it just uh just always turned in a a crazy crazy performances um but yeah so this is a weird film this this one's nuts too like um and, and like the ending again is one that makes it there's this like really creepy moment where you where i thought like i was like this is good and then there's that moment where I don't want to say anything too spoilery, but she hands the kids back the ball and they start like kind of making fun of her. And I was just like, oh, that's really creepy. That kind of reminds me of the others, if anybody's seen that in kind of a way where you're like, oh, that's an awful feeling to have. Um, but yeah, so we have this uh, this woman kind of, she's vacationing in this, I, I don't necessarily remember the small little town, but it seems very religious, small kind of area, vi- village and uh, seaside too, I believe. And she's seeing, like, these murals on the wall, of the devil and stuff like that. And this guy approaches her, and he's very strange, and he's very aggressive, like, come back with me, yada, yada, yada. And they seem to have a relationship. She ends up shoving him down the stairs, and uh, it appears he dies. She thinks no one sees her, so she runs away and she tries to hitch a ride out of there, out of this area. She gets uh, and she starts to carpool with this couple. Um, And uh, the 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 husband is it from Django, the original Django? He plays the one of the villains in that. He's really good in Django. He's also what is the other one he's in? He's in one from 1970. I want to say your sweet uh, body, uh, your hands on my sweet. Is it your hands? No, it's a sweet body of something. I can't remember. It's not sweet body of Deborah. All these jolly. Italian thriller movies mix up. Um, Your Sweet Body to Kill, I think he's in that as well. And he's good in that, too. That's a very underrated kind of fun movie. But anyways, she she kind of carpools with them. The driver is Gabrielle Tinty, who is married to Laura Gemsure. He's in a slew, of the, a slew of movies, very good. Also in uh, Death Occurred uh, Last Night. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's always good, always a welcome to see him. Um, so, so he's the driver, obviously something going on between the driver and the wife. So all four of them are in there, uh, their car breaks down kind of crumbly and, uh, they end up at this very, very creepy kind of a castle environment where Telly Savalas is kind of the butler there. She witnessed Telly Savalas earlier in town with this weird puppet. Uh, so she they end up going in there, and right away something's not right. The mother doesn't want them there. Jesus, um, is the mo- I, I believe the mother is actually the actress who's in tons of other movies. Is she the actress who pops up in Suspiria and Eyes Without a Phase? I feel like it is her. Man, my brain is fried. I think it is her. But she was also in It's Nothing, Mama, It's Just a Game, which I covered last week. If That is her. I'm pretty sure it is her. I'm pretty sure that is the mother. She's in one of these movies. Why am I so old now? But uh, anyways, what happens is uh, it starts to get really strange and really weird and people start to get picked off. And and I I don't want to spoil it. I don't even know if I could spoil this or explain exactly what happens. But there is a scene where somebody gets ran over by a car repeatedly, which I was just like, that's enough. He's dead. This guy is dead. I was like, stop running him over. Telly Savalas is fun. He's creepy. He's always has a sucker who loves your baby. You know. Uh, but yeah, he's he's really solid in it as well. And the ending is batshit, and it makes sense. The ending is crazy, creepy. Uh, yeah, good stuff. Enjoyed Lisa and the Devil. Okay, the last Bava I'm gonna tackle very quickly is Baron Blood from what 1971, 72. Uh, yeah. So uh, this one has Joseph. Uh, is it? Cotton? He's a classic actor. Um, and uh, Lu- Lu- Luciano Pagazzi is in here as well, as as well as some other familiar faces. So, Baron Blood. This one is uh, also has a really gothic feel to it. I think all three have kind of a gothic kind of style to them. You know, empty big castle, fog, all that kind of good stuff that we love. Uh, Trapdoors, all that shit. So, uh, Baron Blood. What we have here is this uh, young man who is kind of visiting his uncle uh, kind of in his old village where his family was from. And he comes from the lineage of of this barren blood who is this horrible person that used to kill tons and tons of people hundreds of years ago he kind of owned this castle the castle is kind of up for renovation I think they're doing something turning it into a motel um, and he wants to go see it his uncle's like okay fine we'll go check it out There, ended up looking around there and he meets the kind of person who's like head of like re, re uh you know re-event re renovating this place reinventing <laughs> renovating this place Um uh, can't talk um so so they hit it off and he kind of like is very interested in his, his, you know his, his ancestor, and they read off this weird kind of script that they shouldn't in the dungeon room, and uh, they bring back Baron Blood. Uh, yeah, so it gets really crazy. People start to get murdered. Baron Blood is running around the town, or who we think is Baron Blood, running around the town, covered, like all his faces and boiled. He's killing doctors and and kind of like uh, drifters and all that kind of shit. So uh, yeah, this is pretty fun. They have a lot of torture devices, which I enjoyed. Uh, there's some pretty graphic... Kills in here for an old 70s movie that I thought were pretty effective. Um, yeah, and, and uh, Cotton's pretty good in it. He shows back up in this about halfway through the movie in a wheelchair, uh, being very happy to buy the castle at a good price. Um, there's some really cool uh, moments in here. You know how, like, kind of they said Vlad the Impaler, what they based Dracula off, would, like, impale his victims. Like, Baron Blood supposedly put people on a spike then like, hung them from his castle. So, like, there's that kind of involved in here as well. Yeah, this one's pretty good. Pretty uh pretty gory for what it is. I mean, I would say so. And it has a nice cast. Um, I don't know which one I prefer out of the three. Um, I liked them all quite a bit. I say Whipping a Body is probably the best. I don't know if it's my favorite, but all three were enjoyable. This one was pretty cool as well. This is. Is barren blood okay this next one is from 2021 or it counts as 2021 and this is from what dark star which is the first uh, kind of uh, partner label release. It's one of the partner labels from Vinegar Syndrome. This is their first release. And this is The Last Matinee, which was on my list to check out. It was one of the ones that I thought would probably be uh, uh, you know, a contender for my top ten list, kind of thinking what I like. I believe this is an Argentinian movie. Is it that or is it uh, is Mexican or Spanish? It, I, I'm not 100%. I think the opening said like Argentinian production or something along those lines. But I I always thought it was Mexican. I'm not 100%. But this movie takes place in 1993, which is perfect because I'm covering 1994, so we get that kind of, you know, that idea and stuff like that. Uh, There's a lot of stuff. Like, we have a lot of 90s stuff. It's, like, kind of like how 80s was the last, like, 5 6 years before 10 years now we're back at now we're like reloving the 90s which is perfect that we drew the 94 for the retro year cuz we have Fear Street 94 VHS 94 just strange coincidence right it's almost like uh it, it's is it, i don't know but so this one takes place in 1993 the last matinee and uh, right in the beginning we have this kind of weird character sitting in a car like eating olives right out of the jar and like getting his covered in these in, in like the brine and everything and uh, the movie takes place in a theater in a last matinee which is, is very fun uh, right away right off the bat I was like oh this director adores movies he's a cinephile or they're a cinephile I, I'm not sure if it's a male or female uh, director I was like they're a cinephile you could tell through and through at least maybe the writer is somebody is just because all the posters on the wall setting the movie in this theater and obviously like a love letter to a lot of movies, right? You think Italian cinema because uh, there's something involving eyes. Um, anguish is on the poster back wall, and I know that movie from 87 has a lot of eye trauma, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This director is obviously a big film fan. Uh, there's posters in the matinee that I should mention, some real, some fake. Uh, there's there's like a really bad Robocop and a, a Jurassic Park poster, like Di- uh, what is it, uh, Dinosoro or something like that for Jurassic Park. So uh, what what's happening is like a a kind of a a ragtag group of people are watching this movie in the theater, Um, actual real movie from ninety three day Frankenstein Day of the Beast, which I've never seen, and I think is actually the real movie they're watching because it it looks fairly crummy. I might keep it that way, but uh, yeah. So the people in the theater kind of feel all like different stages of cinephiles, um, and and there's also some that aren't really cinephiles. We have a group of three kids that are sneaking in to watch the movie, kind of drinking. uh, A young girl who's stood up by herself. um, a couple on their kind of first date. Uh, one's kind of a nerdy cinephile, and the girl's looking for something else. Then we have an old man, we have a bum, and then we have. Um a girl who is kind of filling in for a projectionist father and everything like that. Well, she wants to study and she has to deal with kind of like one of the other employees that works there. So, so we kind of get our like group of characters and, uh, what happens is somebody comes in, locks down the theater and they're in a, you know, a trench coat. They got a knife, they got a hood and they start picking the people off in gory detail. Um, so it's, it's a gore fest. It's a, it's a kind of a slasher. And I know people are like, well, that sounds like a And Yes, yes, uh, it, it definitely is inspired by Italian cinema, but it plays more like a slasher. Think Stage Fright from 1987 by Michele Soave over, you know, Argento or, or something like that or above. I would say it's more in line with, you know, Stage Fright um, or even an Americanized slasher film, to be honest. Um, but yeah, there there is definitely some heavy influence from Italian cinema through this whole entire thing. Um, so, so uh, yeah, the killer is I, I when you they finally reveal the killer, it's just like this little like eh, like troll guy, which I which I kind of love. This just this little small guy. But uh, I like that the characters when they realize that there is a killer, they fight back. I like that quite a bit, and they hurt him bad at times. But they make the same mistake as all other slasher films made. They don't finish the job and they keep doing that like three or four times. That's the only real knock on the movie where I was like, come on. Like, I know you're like a love letter to these old movies, but you know, like at that point now it's like, it's like, are you playing homage to those old movies or are you just falling into the same trappings that they do or whatever? Or you just kind of write yourself in the corner instead of like, you know, whatever it is, whatever it's not a deal breaker. It happens in every slasher movie. I mean, if it was a deal breaker and it wasn't a deal breaker for me in the eighties, it shouldn't be now, but it just gets more and more annoying the more I see it in newer films. Um, yeah, so it just is what it is. Uh, as far as the kills are concerned, they're, they're fairly graphic. They're nasty. There's lots of blood. I liked all the characters so when they actually were killed I was a little sad I was actually very sad because this movie it kills a lot of people that you don't expect to die when they die so people they established every character and they did it well and then they bit it and I was like oh shit that's Quite depressing, but uh, stylized stylized wise, it's really well shot. It's really well acted. The score is great, and at one point in the score, I started hearing like at the the very end uh, when it starts kicking, I'm like, am I hearing little bits of Ritz Ortolani from House on the Edge of the Park? It sounded a little bit like that to me, just little cues, and I was like, that makes me love it even more because that's one of my favorite scores ever um so i even heard a little bit of that um uh, i will mention gumballs eyeballs i love that kind of deal there um (laughs) and uh being very italian focused we can expect some eyeball trauma and you get it you get it spades uh yeah this is a really great movie this is a really fun movie too there's a lot of features on here including director's commentary deleted scenes frankenstein day of the beast feature film you can watch that whole movie puppet pal Uh, V feature film behind the scenes VFX backstage with uh, VFX director Christian Granz urban legend a matinee massacre presented by uh, Guillermo Lockhart short hobby metal hobby metal short behind the scenes film and then we have a bunch of other shorts movie day uh, Uruguay uh, fruit stairs thank you for your visit popping eyes the cookie uh, Maxi Conte's fear. And then we have Espinadas music video by Fora, original theme made for Last Matinee. Storyboards, Kills, gallery by artist Pablo Prano. So anyways, this is a lot of fun, and I wouldn't be surprised if this did make my top 10 of the year. It's right up my alley. This is kind of made for crazy cinephiles who like horror and Italian horror and stuff like that. So check out The Last Matinee. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Okay, this next one is the Patreon pick, and this was from Jim Simon, and he always gives like the classics. He always gives me classics to watch, and this is 12 Angry Men. So you're like, Dave, why is that sealed? Okay, so uh, I, I sat there. I was I started this movie. Uh, I rented it, and it was like uh, 30 minutes in. I paused it for one second. I was like, okay. I immediately got an Amazon. I saw that it was 20 bucks because the Criterion sale's going on, and they're like price matching. I should have just ordered direct, of rec- whatever. Ordered it. It was, uh, I mean, this was no surprise. It's 1957, Sydney Lamette, uh, classic movie with an amazing cast in it, all right? Um, But about 30 minutes in, I was like, I have to have this. This is such a good movie. This is such an amazing film. I just have to have it. So, uh, yeah, 12 Angry Men. The cast in this movie is amazing. You guys know I'm a sucker for a great cast, great dialogue. I don't need much to love a movie. Um, I I mean... And this one, it, just the cast and the dialogue and the characters alone. Um, so basically, they're a jury, um, and they basically think that most of the guys walk in. They think they got an open shut case, right? Uh, very guilty. It's a murder case. Um, they they come back with a guilty verdict. This eighteen year old kid goes to the, the you know he gets the chair, he gets the death penalty. There's twelve jurors, they're all men. They all range from you know uh, you know uh, you know different walks of life. Some seem to be you know more conservative, some more liberal. But it's not necessarily just about that. It's more so you know. Class classism and 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 those kind of elements in there and you have like working class people you have rich people you have like salesmen you have all these different kind of character types within here um and everything like that um and i I, and it just becomes very interesting in in a a way um and and the cast i was just very impressed with it i'm going to look on the front to to point out everybody uh we have geez uh martin balsam which, uh, I, I've seen, he was in another movie this week, and Martin Bolsom's in so many classic movies, Psycho, uh, and, and then he would come back with like, Cape Fear, so, um, and I didn't even recognize him at first, he looked so young, and I, like, seeing the cast, I was like, oh, sh-. I was like, I thought he was, and I was like, oh, shit, that's him, and it took a little bit there, uh, Lee J. Cobb, who's in, like, The Exorcist, another great actor, um, Frickin' E.G. Marshall, who again was an actor I'm familiar with as he's very older. I didn't even recognize him right away. Um, It took a while. Uh, Then we have, who else do we have here? We have Jack Warden, who I I know is an older actor again from Used Cars and Dirty Work. In this movie, he was amazing. Henry Fonda's in here. Um, Then we have Ed Bagley. Uh, Ed Bagley Sr., also fantastic, stuff like Odds Against Tomorrow, and then we have Robert Weber, who I knew from stuff like The Dirty Dozen and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, and a couple French exploitation films that he ended up popping in later in his career. So we have all these different character types, and all the other actors are amazing as well. It's just they're they're guys I'm not super familiar with in the movie, to be honest, in comparison to the other guys. But uh, everybody in this movie is amazing. Everybody's character is written perfect, their performances are perfect, the staging is perfect too. And like the camera, work. Sometimes these shots are very long. They go around the table. The way it's edited, just everything about this movie is perfect. But um, like, just their demeanors, when they walk in, you're like, I know that guy. I know who that person is. I've met that person. I've either been friends with that person. I've argued with that person. I've worked with that person. Like, and I was like, that's such a strange thing. So at the very beginning, um, there's 11 jurors. They all vote. Others uh, 12, I mean, and, and 11 of them. Right off the bat, they're all guilty. Henry Fonda raises his hand and he says, not guilty. And they say, why? Why is he not guilty? He's like, well, somebody's life is at stake in here. I think we should look further in the case. And he starts to like pick apart everything about the case until gradually other people start to see it differently. Some start to change their mind and the arguments get heated. it's not just about this man's life. And you see why someone would vote guilty, why people would vote innocent, you know, not guilty. And then you start to see all these changes within the people. And yeah, you know, and all these different uh, reflections of society and everything like that. But um, there's these just like moments of beauty, like comedy as well. That's it's just like in person, basically just because it's real. One of the characters kind of. Um, kind of says something about Martin Paul's. I'm just like, he he's the you know, the jury leader or whatever, uh the foreman, I jury, whatever they call it. And he says, well, well, you're not doing this right or whatever. And then like, and at first he's very, you know, very friendly and everything. And then he's like, I don't care how you do it. I don't care. He's like, he's clearly annoyed by uh, like uh that guy calling him out. But like throughout the movie, as it like goes on, like you're starting to understand why a lot of people are coming at things the way they are. You're like, well, I understand what he's saying and why they're this way. And so you kind of get just down to two people and you're just like, well, I don't really, and then like it gets further and further down into it, and you're just like, well, you see why they're the way they are, and they set everything up, especially with like Lee J Cobb, um, uh, his kind of his kind of arc and everything is wonderful. Jack Warden is is fucking hilarious in this movie. Um, he he's the guy who uh, he has like uh baseball tickets for like season. He's just like, oh, let's get out of here. Let's just get this thing over with. And he's just like doing that whole deal, and uh, he's he's fantastic in it, and you know, Pauly Shore jury duty would kind of have a character like that. like kind of mocking this kind of whole thing or whatever, whatever it is. I remember that movie being a kid and that, like that idea just kind of riffing on this uh, for sure. But uh, yeah, um, it's just kind of really beautiful. And and I, and I I don't really want to say it's making some sort of political statement, although there's a lot of political stuff within these people or just, it, it feels more like where they come from in life, their walks of life, less on just a political spectrum here. Um, like, but that that plays into it i think to a certain extent as well but just the way these people are and the way they interact with others too, like their demeanor and stuff. But everybody is so good in this film. Like the, the wimpy kind of guy with the, the glasses, he kind of starts to get more like speak up for himself a little bit more throughout the movie. They, like all the characters have these arcs and these changes um, within them. And, and they, sometimes they happen quicker. They happen longer and every, like shorter, quicker, whatever like that. But uh, there's just some really good moments here. And like, they all start uh, at first they they're so Joe, like, so like, you know, uh, professional, with each other and friendly but then they start to attack each other throughout the movie well i'm not listening to the foreign guy or or the guy in the gray suit uh the salesman's jumping back and forth the guilty not guilty all over the place And like they all start just to attack each other um but there's points where i i just like it is comedy in, in times it's not a comedy it's a drama and it's a very heavy drama but also like the moments of just like oh wow i can't believe they went there or they said that i'm just like oh but the dialogue is so good it's so perfect like that I just caught myself and maybe it was giddy excitement laughing or or just the way they perform this roles like when they're going around the table they always do these guilty not guilty guilty not guilty <laughs> And well, I think Robert Weber's the last one I think he's juror uh 12 or and they're like uh juror 11 or 12 they all go by those two they don't go by their names which is perfect and he's like He's like staring off in the distance and they're like, you're 12. He's like, oh, oh, guilty. Like he's annoyed he has to answer it again or something like it, but he was just trailing off. But like, you could start to see like people turn whether it's like, or when they like completely like have a epiphany, like all of them with on their faces. And like even EG Marshall, who's like this very logical character where he's basing everything on facts and, 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 and everything until they like eliminate that last fact where he's just like, Oh. I was wrong, but like, you could see the reason behind certain people, right? And then you could see the unreasonable people too. And, and I guess it's just kind of like, they're saying like, at least like five, 6% of the population is completely unreasonable or like two out of two, uh, two out of 12 unreasonable people, you know what I mean? Like, but, uh, yeah, it's just, uh. I just loved it. Uh, Henry Fonda's is great in it too. I mean, I, I should talk a little bit more about him and his demeanor and just the way he, he's just so smart and the way he breaks it down and everything. And you kind of just realized that this poor kid had a terrible defense attorney who just assumed he was guilty in itself. And it's, it's a way to look at, you know, uh, and step outside and be like, well, sometimes you got to eliminate your own ideas and your prejudices and all that kind of stuff. And, and the, the importance of being on, you know, a jury, um, and just step back and, just just try to look at it objectively and honestly and just not condemn somebody right away or or not condemn somebody right away. You know, you just kind of have to look at the facts and it's just it's a brilliant movie. I, I don't know what to say. And I've heard a million people write talk about this one. But um, like there's a lot of people like and also you kind of watch the film and you're like, which which person am I most like or which people do I know somebody like in life? And, and, I, and they all felt like real people to me. They all felt like character types, but also very real three-dimensional um and a lot of them did have arcs um and i thought every performance was great so that's uh 12 angry men all all the performances were good too so I mean, great uh, and realistic. Um, There's some features on here which I didn't get a chance to watch because I ordered the disc right after I rented it. Um, Frank Schaefer's 1995 teleplay of 12 Angry Men from the series Studio One with an introduction by Ron Simon. Uh, Production history of 12 Angry Men from teleplay to big screen classic. Archival interviews with director Sidney Lumet. New interview with screenwriter Walter Bernstein about Lumet. New interview with Simon about writer Regional Rose. Tragedy in Temporary Town, 56, a teleplay directed by Lumet and written by Rose. New interview with cinematographer John Bailey about director of photography Boris Kaufman, original theatrical trailer, and a booklet featuring an essay by writer and law professor Thane Rosenbaum. So, yeah, uh, great movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, do it. It's one of those ones that uh, could change your life, I think. Prison officials say Dahmer's head may have been bashed against a wall. The of last-minute appeals failed to stop the execution of America's most notorious
1: mass murderer, John Wayne Gacy.
0: Throughout, Chikatilo presented himself
1: as a wretched victim of nature's indifference. Saying the (laughs) proof. Reality! Why do you know about reality? This is not a solitary story. This is not reality. Not reality. Not reality. This is reality. that reality? Not reality. (laughs) reality. (laughs) Fantastic. The delusion of a disordered mind. A phantom. A spirit. A ghost. Look, he hasn't got
0: any villages. And the coma he's in is irreversible. Give me a signature and I'll pull the plug now! Fuck off! <laughs> Okay, this one also happens to be the pervert card uh, of the show, so pull out your pervert card, get ready, and uh, you know what I was thinking, the best way to follow up the absolute classic 12 Angry Men uh, with is you gotta follow it up with something, you know, of equal weight, of equal importance, so that's why I'm following it up with Rape Man 4, (laughs) yeah. Okay, 1994, Rape Man 4, the last of the Rape Man movies. That's from 1994. Uh, 2, 3, and 4 happened to be made in 1994 uh, with the quickness, obviously. Um, in fact, all, all, these, uh, all those movies, they start to get like a, almost like television series kind of thing about them where you're like, okay, this is almost the same, like it's the same kind of style unfolds with the ending. They're, they feel like long television episodes, to be honest. But they just feature rape and a character called Rape Man who, you know, rape through ju- uh, justice through rape. You guys know. So, Rape Man, in the first film, like I said, he kind of went against crooked politicians, and that's kind of a theme here. And the second film, uh, who did he go against? Uh, The crooked doctors and nurses... Uh, always working with the Yakuza. They're always working with some sort of criminal element. In the third film, we went after the crooked police and um, teachers. So in the fourth film, we're going to go against the crooked religious cults, which is kind of an interesting point. Like I said, uh, when I was talking about uh, Angel Dust, a uh, Japanese film from that time, from 94, um, um Shirikyo, which is a very uh, kind of famous uh, Japanese cult, uh, was kind of strong in this time period. So uh, Rape right, Man's right on the issues, right? Right on the social commentary here. I would say just kind of like taking stuff right out of the headlines and going with it, but uh, yeah, it's kind of going after the religious cult, uh, sex, and all those kind of things, which Angel Dust uh, tackles as well. Which is crazy that a lot of these movies are just definitely reflecting what's happening in their own countries, like all movies do. But uh, who would think that Rape Man Four actually would have its uh, you know fingers on the pulse? Maybe because they're made so quick and they're just looking for an idea that's right there on their face. So boom, why the hell not? We'll go with you know the religious cult aspect. So. In the very beginning, Rape Man is hired to rape a a famous singer who's rude and awful to people to teach her a lesson. Of course, that happens. Then we kind of get into the the main storyline here. So uh, the main storyline, there's this like street cleaner that cleans up the street just to be nice. And uh, Rape Man has his day job as a school teacher, Caesar and he has like an affinity for her, He's like, oh, that's so sweet. That's so nice. I wish my students were this good. Yada, yada, yada. Because, you know, he's a a bumbling idiot and looked at as just an old creepy man by his uh, students. Um, So what happens is um it turns out that the the street cleaner's husband um it wants to hire Rape Man to rape her because she belongs to this religious cult that's taking all their money, and she can't get married to her because they're in—he's the, not in the cult—and it, it's a big old money scheme and everything like that. So Rape Man does do it, but um, they forgive her in the church, and they're still exploiting her and taking advantage of her. So Rape Man and uh, the boss uh, decide to go infiltrate this church and become members. That's kind of like the whole movie. The most of the movie uh, is up to that point where it's just him trying to infiltrate the church but he also sees some elements about it with the, the old kind of leader. He's like, maybe he actually is pious and all this kind of stuff. So rape man goes down to kind of discover the crookedness and evilness of these religious cults. Uh, yeah. So, uh, there's obviously some comedy elements in here with the old man, uh, the boss who doesn't want to eat what they're feeding him. And then he eats it anyway, all that kind of stuff. I mean, last movie, they made him a all out, like smut peddler, uh, pedophile. Um, this time he's back to the lovable comedic old man that we all, you know, door. But it's just like the total stuff in these movies. But uh, there is a point in this, the love story with uh, the... uh the husband and his uh, his wife, who's in this cult, um, he he works for a senator, and you know anything you know about rape, man. Um, they're going to show you that everybody's corrupt, including the politicians, especially the politicians and all that kind of stuff dealing, and it, it all ties together. It comes together at the very end. Uh, the final rape is uh, is uh, pretty crazy because it's a it's a bad person, so it's okay. That's sarcasm, um, but uh, it's the person tied on the religious symbol, think kind of like the element of a cross, and they're they're handcuffed around that and they're raped over the cross and they're forced to repeat the church's motto. Uh, what is it? Freedom, justice through charity. Uh, and you're just like, fuck, but there is a moment in this movie where there is kind of a, uh, the love story between the husband and the, the, the religious cult lady, um, who's forced into the cult or, or brainwashed by the cult where I was like that is actually semi touching and I can't believe they're getting me to have an m- emotional feeling invested in this movie but they did they managed to do that which probably makes us the best of the bunch but uh, yeah um, it, it is what it is there's these weird like editing transitions in this one where it's very 90s very cheap where it's like whew, they're trying to be like I don't know what they're trying to be clever or like the boobs without the, the rape scenes and showing the nudity will like have this weird transition where it's like it's all crazy colored and stuff and it's like I don't know what is this artistic choice in here or why it's there but what it is what it is um yeah so this time now um we have rape man go he went against politicians he went against doctors he's one went against you know the police now he's gone against the church what is next rape man i really don't know i mean the fifth one's gonna be the last one i watch i don't know there is one where rape man fights a copycat which i think could be very funny in i shouldn't use the term funny but uh he has to stop a, a copycat um could be very interesting because uh how do you deal with someone that's doing the i don't know is the copycat raping the wrong people i mean it's this i don't even want to get into any of this the, the, trying to justify rape
1: man's actions because you can't
0: uh anyways uh rape man 4 the last one from 94 so yeah It is what it is. Okay, this next one here is one of the heavy hitters from 1994, directed by legendary horror director Wes Craven. This is Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Uh, and this is a, kind of an interesting concept. This is before Scream, but it's very meta, and it kind of was like a precursor to Scream for Wes Craven. Um, you know, he didn't want to direct any of the sequels to Nightmare on Elm Street, but he kind of wanted to come back after they kind of invited him to come back to make another one or something along those lines. The fans wanted Freddy. And uh, this is a great way to kind of approach the Nightmare on Elm Street movies where the movies are movies within this. You know what I mean? Like the series is films within this movie. Heather Langenkamp comes back, uh, Robert Englund, Bob Shea, John Saxon, and they all play play themselves, uh, you know, from the movies and everything like that. So, L.A. is experiencing these really bad earthquakes at the time, and Heather Langenkamp is like uh, having a lot of, like, nightmares and stuff, um, From and the earthquakes are not helping. She has a kid of her own, a young kid, the kid from Pet Cemetery and kid to Garden Cop, and her husband works on movies. I believe she does too. In real life, she still works on movies, so her husband is like a special effects artist. Um, then one day, uh, basically, there's a tra- tragic accident on, her, on his way home, And she's starting to have like these mental breaks. She's having a caller who claims to be Freddy Krueger and all that kind of stuff. Um, so everywhere she goes she's constantly reminded of the Nightmare on Elm Street films she's worried about her son who starts to act er erratic and stuff like that she takes comfort in like talking to people like John Saxon who's really good in this one and and even Wes Craven but uh, Wes Craven plays a character within this movie where he's kind of like talking a little bit about like the evil of the script and and the idea is really strange that possibly that uh, Wes Craven captured evil within these movies and it was a vessel to hide the evil and that vessel was portrayed through Freddy Krueger but when there's no movie being made, that evil is free to go in the world. But it likes the, uh, I guess, the the um, physical manifestation of Freddy Krueger, so therefore the evil is coming out in a new and improved, scarier Freddy, this weird demon. So Freddy is the demon. He is the dream demon, but he's different, and the rules are different, and he's trying to get into this real world. And he's after, obviously, Heather Langenkamp's son. Um, there's some elements of some of the first one in here, where like we have, like, um, or the series in general, where people just don't believe that Heather Langenkamp and her kid are not mentally ill—that that kind of elements and stuff like that. I'm not sure how I really like how Freddy looks in this one. Um, he looks kind of cheap. I, I don't even know how to explain it. He looks bizarre. Like I think I always approve, you know, like the ones from the earlier films. Freddy didn't always look great, but I, I think I, I, I like the earlier ones. I'm not sure. I, I think they should have just went with the regular Freddy to be honest. I know he's supposed to be new and improved, but um, and at the end, like you seem like Freddy falls into some of the same gags he would. In as the Silly Freddy with the roll-out tongue and shit. And you're like, eh, I don't know about that. I do appreciate that they kind of bring back the the, the hard to walk upstairs. That's kind of cool. And I love seeing John Saxton come back. He's always great. And I like that all the characters start to kind of relive the original movie and become who they were in the film. Like, it's bleeding into the real world. That's kind of interesting stuff in here. There's lots of cool ideas. Is it executed perfectly? No. But is it executed well enough? Yeah. And it brings up a lot of cool ideas, too. And I also like... Um, there's, there's stuff about it that I think is interesting. Like I said, all that kind of stuff. Um, the kills aren't as great as I remember. They're not, there's not many of them and they do the kind of ceiling upside down room from the first one. Um, where I think Tina got killed and that's one of the best kills ever. This one is just like a lackluster version of that. And you're like, why be worse than the first one when you're 10 years later down the line? I think it's too long. I think this movie is close to an hour and 50 minutes or something like that. You're like, this is too fucking long for this. Um... But I, I do enjoy watching it every time. And it had been years since I watched it. Um, and, and when it comes to the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, um, I love the first. I like the second. I, I like the third. I like the fourth, which is one that a lot of people don't like. And I like this one, too. I've never been a big fan of five. And last rewatch on six, I don't like. So i I'd really put it as I just don't care for five and six very much at all. Um, this one I I, I did like. Um, I don't love it. I, I think I prefer the first four over this one. But like I said, the ideas are there. The concepts are there. It's different. And I do like the attempt at making it different and weird. And there is some cool stuff in here. So I got to give it props for that for sure. Uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Uh, yeah, like um, there, there is some visual stuff that's great too. Like the multiple Freddies is interesting enough. The the pulling him over the uh, traffic is cool. Um, yeah, and so I, I give this one a pass. I, I do like it. I don't know if, if it will make something like my top 10 for 94. I really don't know. And I know a lot of people probably love this one and I could see why they would, but I can also see why people wouldn't like this one in a lot of ways, too. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, or West Craven's Zoo Nightmare, I should call it. All right, guys, this is the one you've been waiting for. I know it. This is from 1994. This is Silence of the Hams. That's right, starring Dom Deluise. This is a parody film that uh, is obviously a take on Silence of the Lambs um, and Psycho. Uh, it's in the, the vein of A Naked Gun, it's not nearly as successful as A Naked Gun at all, um, but here we go. So let me look at the cast on the back of this is really kind of what you're looking for. Like, just look at the cast there and just tell me that's not an amazing cast. So we have the the main star who also wrote and directed the movie. I don't know who the hell he is. Enzio Gregorio, Gregorio he's got to be on there, right, because he directed it. But um, when you look at the other cast, you're like... Might even put your name on the back. He does star in it though, but maybe it's a vanity thing. I don't know. Dom DeLuise, Billy Zane, Joanna Pakula, uh, Charlene Tilton, Martin Balsam, uh, Stuart Peckin, John Astin, Phyllis Diller, Bubba Smith, Larry Storch, Rip Taylor, Shelley Winters. Not to mention that there's cameos that I spotted right off the bat of Joe Dante and John Carpenter sharing a scene together, which is fun. Uh, Henry Silva, which I saw right away. Marshall Bell. Um, I always forget this guy's name. Um, he is in Oblivion. And an exterminator and he's house thousands of corpses he plays Ravelli. uh he's he has a smaller role in here tony cox so the cast is huge and it has a lot of memorable people in it um it is the the silliest thing like i love this movie as a kid me and my cousin thought it was the funniest thing ever as we would i guess but rewatching it i was just like oh no, like a lot of the humor is super dated, like the Marshall Bell gag, uh, is not going to fly very well, but saying that shit's dumb, like, hey, this wouldn't fly in today's climate, it's like, whatever, that just goes without saying, um, I'm tired of saying it, um, but it's just, it's not even just that, like, that's not a problem, you can't rate a movie lower just because it doesn't, it's just outdated humor, like, you know, it might not be funny, which make which hurts it. But yeah, it's kind of weird. It's a, it's like a weird kind of double edged sword thing here. But um, I don't even know if it's a double edged sword. That's not the right word. It's it is what it is. I don't even know. I got nothing for it. I got no uh, simile or metaphor or nothing. I got nothing for it. So uh, basically, Jodie Foster, played by Billy Zane. That's Jodie. He he fills the roles of Jodie Foster's character. He's supposed to go meet Dom Deluise, who is Doctor uh Cannibal Pizza or some shit like that. That's what that's the place he wants to open, Doctor Animal Cannibal, and uh, he. He's, you know, the Hannibal Lecter character, and he needs help trying to figure out this, you know, the serial murderer or whatnot. Um, so basically what happens is uh, there's also a storyline of the Psycho storyline. We have uh, the Greg Rio guy kind of like being the Norman Bates character, and he's narrating the whole movie too, trying to solve his murder or whatever the hell. So uh, essentially we have, you know, the Psycho and Silence of the Lambs storylines meeting um, in here. Uh, it, this is nonsense. This movie is nonsense. Like within the first ten minutes, there's like a hundred gags. And unlike Naked Gun, which it's like it has five gags a minute, and like three, three and a half of them land, and you think are funny. So like even if a gag doesn't land, you're like, okay, that's very funny. And it is broad. Like it's broad out, of, uh, sometimes out of nowhere humor as well. This one is even broader than that. Um, ninety percent of the jokes are unrelated to what the hell's happening. It'll just be like, yeah, there'll be like a guy walked down the street and just like, or thriller zombies will pop out for no fucking reason or or the Star Wars Cantina aliens will get killed by bug spray and you're like I, I don't know why like why so like you can get away with a couple jokes like that um, but like there's more jokes per minute than ever but like 95% of them fall flat and like it's just so fast it's just so stupid it's just so dumb like I don't I like <laughs> but I'm not gonna lie at the same time I was doing this, I was shaking my head endlessly, like laughing to myself. So I guess it's got something there. Like if you watch this with a group of people, it's like kind of embarrassing funny, but it's also kind of funny. So I really don't know how to like rate something like this because like a couple of the jokes made me laugh, but it's just such a, it's also such a product of its time where it's like, hey, we're going to have a George uh, Bush impersonator and a Bill Clinton impersonator running down the street with Joe D. Foster and they're going to start arguing with each other and then get in a fist fight. And, uh, you know, Bill Clinton's going to make a reference to Dawn of the Dead. And, and somebody's going to, you know, make a reference to Bill Clinton not being, you know, the president. You know, his wife is. And it's just like, man, it's so on the nose. It's so stupid. It's so much a product of its time. It's just like eye rolling, you know, like how people are always worried about when they put like uh, references in that will date the movie. This is what they're talking about like this. Um, but I just couldn't believe how how stupid everything was, but that's kind of what it's going for. It's uh, outrageously stupid, and all those parody movies are outrageously stupid. It's just something about the Leslie Nielsen ones or those guys who make those that are just a much more clever or funny. Like, I guess it's just maybe Leslie Nielsen playing it completely straight that does it, that I think his his performances just make those movies work so much better. But, like, when you get to the classic act, oh, Mel Brooks is fucking in this too. I should mention Mel Brooks is in this movie for one scene, which is insane to get Mel Brooks in here. Of all the people they get it, Mel Brooks, um, and he's funny in it. I mean he's a scene. Uh, Martin Balsam as funny in it. Like when you get the classic actors like Martin Balsam, Balsam, he's very funny in it and he's just named Mar- he's his name Balsam in it. Um and he plays kind of the same character He played psycho. Um so so you get that kind of stuff in here. Um, and, and Dom DeWeese is funny. His delivery is funny. The way he works about it. He's like, of course, it has that stupid moment with Silence of the Hams. He's like, hams are very silent unless they're falling down the stairs. Bumbity, bumity, bumity, bum. Um, and he's like, and he's naming other foods. He's like, celery, loud. apples louder unless you're having applesauce, which goes quite good with ham. When you spare, say, Jody, and you're just like, what? That part is funny. I see. I have some of these lines uh, committed to memory because we watched this so much. I don't know how to go about this movie. Like, this is a bad movie. This is bad. This is fucking not funny. But comedy is very subjective. And I am very stupid. Very stupid. So I laughed. I was laughing when I was shaking my head too. So I don't know it's this, like, I know people are like, I don't like guilty pleasures, but this is a guilty pleasure. If I ever seen one in my life where I'm just laughing, but I'm just like, I can't believe this is this happening. Like, this is so stupid. It's so stupid. Like, it's kind of like, uh, you're like, a, your 5 five-year-old making jokes where you're just like, that's very cute. I don't, but it's also like trying to be edgy. Uh, fuck. I don't know. Sounds of the hams. It's really dumb. It's really dumb. But, uh, <laughs> it, it made me laugh sometimes, But again. You guys know me, so it is what it is. Uh, there's an HD print you can watch. You can find an HD print. I believe you can run it. So if you want to see this in HD, check it out. Okay, the next one from 1994 is The Paperboy. That's right. This is a Republic Pictures movie, that company used to run. So uh, this is kind of in the vein of you guys remember those uh, those like uh, killer kid movies. Um, it's, it's like that, but the title would suggest it's one of those like profession movies where it's like, Oh, we got the surgeon. We got the dentist. We got the ice cream man. After it hit the ice cream man, it's like, we're done. We're not doing this anymore. Stop just naming car- naming like professions and making them horror movies. I know there's the plumber. There's a the gardener, all these movies. It's just like, why did this happen? Like, I, I some of it makes sense, but it's just so funny. It's like then we got down to the fucking paper boy. Now the Paperboy is a killer. Can you trust no one in the 90s? Um, not all those movies were from the 90s I name, but you guys get the point. So the Paperboy, this is a Canadian production, so making a joke, 22 Shots. You guys know I hate it automatically. Obviously kidding. Um, also in line with movies like Mikey and Milo, especially Mikey so uh right at the beginning we have the paper boy committing a horrible act of murder against an old lady she's watching like home videos of her granddaughter and daughter and she's very happy until she's suffocated with a plastic bag. We hear this weird comment the paperboy makes about now you'll have to come back and we, we realize that the paper boy is obsessed with this old woman's daughter and granddaughter and wants them as a family of his own um, so uh, right away when they move back and about it and are handling the details of the funeral um, and are, are moving into the house he starts to kind of like force himself within their family he's helping around he's mowing the lawn when he shouldn't and at first she um um the 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 mother seems to be okay with it as the the actress from Christine she seems okay a little bit with it a little creeped out but she kind of embraces him and the paper boy is uh you know like kind of making his way into this family um but like you start to see glimpses of violence in him when things don't go his way and he he just does these over the top insane things like you're not my and you're just like I hate this kid so much but it's because he's Doing a good job, like he's genuinely coming off as a real fucking scary creep, and like the switch of the flip of the switch and everything like that. So, like he starts to be obsessed with it, and he, things get matters get worse when an old friend of hers starts to date her William Cat from Carrie and House and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, he's good in this too. He's always good. Always turns in a good performance. Solid actor. Um, and like Frances Bay, who's like a local kind of eccentric lady. You know, she's in tons of movies. Um, she's in freaking a couple David Lynch movies. She's in, uh, I believe, she's in Blue Velvet. She's in a lot of movies. You've seen Frances Bay. And a million times, um she said, happy Gilmore, can I trouble you for a warm glass of milk? We all know how the line goes, but uh basically. She basically starts warning uh the, the daughter that uh you know this kid's not right, uh he has the market cane, and blah, blah, blah. We like so so like we know that this kid has been neglected, his mother's died, the father's never around because he's kinda lost, and and this kid's developed some weird infatuation with this family, he wants to be part of it. Um and of course people are gonna die, there's gonna be attempted murder, there's gonna be murder, um, there's gonna be some crazy stuff here. Um but as far as killer kids movies go, this is pretty solid. Um I thought it worked pretty well. I know it, and it has a real cheesy kind of 90s thriller feel to it that like small town riding a bike kind of shit like you're like oh hi and then like it turns and has like these dark like stuff in there that is cheesy as well but uh i actually really enjoyed this one a lot more than i thought i would um it is better than uh, a lot of people are giving it credit for when you kind of put it in like this is a 90s like cheapy canadian thriller horror film like yeah it is what it is some people are saying like this is one of the ones where they had to sell horror movies as thrillers and it, it does feel like but it feels more like a horror film too you know what i mean like the horror thriller movies from the 90s and I I caught myself enjoying it for the most part I thought the performance from the kid was good he was over the top he was he was an asshole and there's this good moment uh, the way they handle his father like because I legitimately thought the father was not going to be there at all He was going to be dead but like she confronts the father and he just seems very meek and he just doesn't know what to do and there's this great scene where he goes up to his son and he starts to talk to him he's like hey can I get your birthday present early and like he seems kind of like he's just not a great father at all but there's some like r- attempt at reaching out to his son and I was like, They're handling this really well. They're genuinely making him a real human being. And then uh what happens next worked really well too. Um I mean it makes you kind of feel for the character to a certain extent. But anyways, I, I like this one. The paper is pretty good. Um, uh especially for what it is, you know, when you're like putting it in line with stuff like Mikey and those other kind of killer kid movies of the time and those kind of, you know, titled like The Dentist and stuff like that, and um Uh, What's the other one I was thinking? The ice cream ad, you know. It feels like in that 90s kind of vein for sure. That is Paperboy. Okay, this next one I don't have a copy of. This is Throne of Hell. And this is a Mexican uh, horror film here. Fantasy horror film, I would say, I guess. Or it's categorized as that. So, uh, yeah, this is a pretty wild one. It kind of feels like an Italian kind of movie or even an old mummy movie. How it kind of opens just to kind of plot. While there's these archaeologists kind of digging up this area, they're finding a lot of artifacts. And they find this golden seal. Um, And they're like, this doesn't this doesn't match anything, right? This feels, you know, this is from a newer, like, kind of religious area, like, part. this doesn't match to the other stuff. So they, they remove it, of course, and there's this uh, weird offering under the ground in, a, in, like, this big vase, and they pick it up and they drop it, and this kind of, like, this, all these dust and stuff comes out, and there's this weird, bizarre, demonic dog-like statue with these ruby eyes, and uh, one of the guys breathes in all this shit. It, it puts him in the hospital right away, he's bleeding out of his mouth, and we're like, oh, this dude's fucking demonically possessed, right? Um, We're pretty sure. So... After that, like uh, he's kind of in the in the hospital. A priest kind of comes in there to console him, and he loses his mind. He stands up, throws the priest out the window. A police detective gets involved with it. That guy's missing. He's after him, and everything like that. And we kind of catch on that uh, that that seal was one of this like religious element, and we have this like kind of religious order there that is also kind of following this and trying to stop it because this ties into a lot of religious kind of you know uh, second all of that kind of shit coming in right where uh, it needs to happen to a certain extent, but. The religious people have to stand up and fight against this possessed demon and everything so we have this kind of like religious soldier getting involved so yeah it's all going to come together at the very end so like this uh possessed person like um actually gets like put into this fire and they're all burned up so like through half the movie they're just basically a meatball going around killing people and, and whatnot and there's a couple of uh, gory details in here a couple good kills and everything um but then the ending it gets pretty bonkers and everything we have this like elaborate kind of not elaborate i would say elaborate but it's kind of a uh, I guess, functional, <laughs> functional sword fight. Um, and a showdown between the religious soldier warrior and this possessed guy. Um, I thought this one worked fine. I thought it was entertaining as hell. I thought there was some good gory bits. I thought it opened with a lot of promise where I thought we were going to get something along the lines of as, as crazy as like McKellie Suave's the church. Second reference to McKellie Suave this week. So, but I really thought we were going to get something like the church where like you, you uncover something real fucked up and then everybody's possessed or or stuff, but it doesn't ever go that far, but it goes far enough for, I, where I enjoyed it. I did like the lead cop in here. I enjoyed him. Um, Yeah, this was an entertaining movie. You get some crazy uh, like special effects, demonic possession stuff at the very end, Uh, you know, monster with a sword shit. Anyways, it's an enjoyable movie, Uh, pretty cool stuff and uh, not heard anybody ever talk about it or bring it up and there's some nice gory bits in here as well. So I just wish there was more of the gory bits, more of the killing. But uh, as far as it goes, I think it's very entertaining and the credits are like, none of this is real. It's uh, based on any fact. All right. Like, yeah, no shit. Um, (laughs) But, throne of hell check it out okay and the last one from 1994 has always been a favorite of mine i originally saw this on vhs i wish i still had my old vhs when i was by like 13 14 years old and i immediately connected with it this is shatter dead Directed by Scooter McRae, um, who also did 16 Tongues. This is an SOV uh, movie. So, yeah, 94 had a handful of SOV movies. Eric Stanzi was out there still making movies with Savage Harvest and SOV. So, Shattered Dead. Um, I always bring this one up as a reference point to amazing concepts on low budget movies. And this is one of the the ones that takes the cake for me. You know, it, it just really does. Um, the idea is amazing, uh, basically, or it's just so ambitious, I should say. I, I think it's amazing. So, I mean, but it's very ambitious. We have what happens is an a, a, um, a angel sleeps with a mortal woman. And after that, I guess we're supposed to assume that it's it made God so upset that everybody just stops dying. And we're in this world where the dead don't die. They die and they come right back, but they don't lose their memory. They just like they, they and uh, they just they're there. And of course, society doesn't want them. Right, it's in that uh, kind of the long lines of that. There was a movie that came out later down the line from like the mid 2000s called like The Last Rites, which also kind of handled that concept where the people just stop dying, but uh, they don't lose their memory. They're just kind of rotting, or or they you know any injuries they sustain, you know, it doesn't go away. So like you have a lot of people that are messed up, but they still want to provide for their families and everything like that. And you have that in Shattered Dead. And like the opening opens up with the lead character kind of wandering around the the this like uh, desolate kind of town. And there's just zombies on the street, and they're all just kind of begging for money. They don't eat flesh and, um, or anything like that. But there's this real great moment where this guy who's all battered and beaten up. He's all bloody. And he says, spare change, ma'am. And he he says, uh, she's like, she kind of tries to get around him. And he says, I had to, I had to uh, volunteer as a crash test dummy to make money for my family. And now I'm too damn ugly to go home. That's gotta be worth something. And you're just like, oh shit, like that's a real good, and then he she drops the corner and he's like God bless you. God bless her. And it's just like oh man, this world is hell. This legitimately looks like hell. And they shot it in kind of a place that they said in the, in the interviews really hasn't updated very much and you just feel it. You feel the poverty and the, the, the way this is shot and everything like that. But uh, pretty soon she kind of gets stranded because the zombies are so desperate to steal her gas and she's kind of like caught up by this cult uh, led by this really strange reverend guy With this nasty broken nose, they said he looked great because of the broken nose. And he kind of all these zombies steal her gas, and she's kind of left to have to stay at this like halfway house where they have this curfew. It's just like this post-apocalyptic, strange world. Um, But uh, like when I think about, I don't want to spoil the entire movie, but I just think that stuff is really amazing. And like the transgressive idea of it, you know, the and it brings up all these social issues too, how people act and and what would be going on here. And like there's three zombie movies that I always just besides the big Romero movies and like the classics that are just. Like lower budget zombie films that their ideas are so different and they're handling it in a completely different way that I'm just always I've always I've always stuck up for and I've always loved um, Dead Next Door is one of them. The idea that the zombie cult and the and that whole stuff is just like. It would happen, man. You just see how people are now, and and just so divided, and you have so many different extremists everywhere. It's like, hell yeah, there would be a zombie cult, people that worship the dead. Um, and then you see Shadow Dead, which is one that I'm just like amazed that they just stopped dying, and it's the reasons why, and and uh, what happens with the zombie cult in itself, the people who have been turned, and and the idea that like all these things, like people are calling them from the grave, and just all sorts of creepy, weird shit happening, and the ideas, and how society crumbles, and you know all that stuff in there is very interesting. And different. And then, of course, The Last Rites, which I, I bring up, which kind of plays on this, where we have a group that goes around, you know, kind of vigilantism, killing the zombies because they don't want them around society like these second class citizens. I felt like those three low budget zombie movies just were like they did so much with the genre with so little and they're so different so like and Shattered Dead is such a great movie too like um, I know that a lot of people knock on some of the acting and independent movies you know acting ranges and, and all that kind of thing but Scooter McRae and the cinematographer were on here a special feature and they were talking about it and they're like well you know a lot of people say sure they didn't prefer like the lead actress's acting and fuck you because uh, she was doing what I told her and if her acting came across bad to you it's my fault I don't think she's bad uh, she was going for more of the Clint Eastwood style one-liners and in a world where you know you're the dead have refused to live and you're tired and you're walking just non-stop and you don't have any sleep and you're deprived and you have no real like you know all that stuff is gone from you you're almost dead yourself if, if you feel like you're a little bit less emotional i don't really see a problem with that exactly you know I, I don't know how I feel about her performance as a whole but I can see where he's coming from and I don't necessarily I like her uh, her look and her demeanor and everything like that I think she's got a great look for the movie and uh, you know and there's just she does a lot of brave shit that a lot of other people wouldn't do and I, I like the character type for sure but you know a lot of people complained about that performance and he said you know that's what I wanted her to go for so if anybody has problems with the performance it, it, it's, it's on me so but he also says fuck you because I understand that feeling you know when people like um it's one thing if somebody doesn't like your movie but then if like you're i've watched been in independent movies that i was just acting in and like someone will write a review and it's fine if you don't like me i don't give a shit Oh, the acting is bad here or that but like people literally be like well that person's ugly and they shouldn't be in movies and it's just like Go fuck yourself, man. Like that has nothing to do with their performance or the movie. Really, it's just your personal preference or you got to knock somebody down like that. I don't like that. And so I always try to avoid pointing out a performance I dislike, especially in independent movies, because a lot of times they're going to see that. And, they're, and It's just like and I know it's not being dishonest. I don't think I think it's being genuinely, you know, decent person to not personally point out somebody like that you think's a bad actor. Maybe just say the acting ranges. Some of the performances are better than others. And then point out the ones you really like, and and maybe. But I don't. I, this performance never killed the movie for me. You know what I mean? Like I said, it makes sense that a lot of the people are kind of uh, wooden in a in a fucking desolate world where your emotion's not there, and half of them are dead. Like half of them have already taken their lives in the movie. So like, because you have a lot of people killing themselves so they can stay young and beautiful and stuff. A lot of the people they do it quick. So they fuck themselves up, but, um, they do it like uh, on instinct or something like that because there's always that constant barrage, like I said, of the calling of the corpses uh, from people and everything, which is a crazy element to it. But I'm just saying, um, I can understand why a lot of the characters have like a little bit less humanity in them when they act. You know, it makes sense. And I, I love this movie. I think it's one of the best. It's probably my favorite SOV. Once I think back, like shot on video movies, I think it's probably my favorite. I think it's genuinely a great movie. And it's very cool that uh, this version is it's actually six minutes shorter. I know people are like, but I want the original version. It's also on there. But Scooter uh, said basically the director said he cut. A lot of like dead frames because when they edited on SOV, they had to do it in order. They had to dub dupe over a tape every time to add like transitions and stuff. So it always lost quality. He went back to the master and with that, the digital editing and stuff that we're all used to, he could do it in the top notch order and have the best quality. So and he he kind of remastered the score and everything. So rewatching this, I was just like, I it flowed a lot better like, that I remembered. Like, it wasn't slow, it wasn't bad, and I never thought it was bad or slow, but I thought that there, you know, there's some dead air in the original version, and it was an hour and 21 minutes, this is now, like, an hour and 15, and I'm all about shortening shit up, like, um, and, like, making shit flow better, like, I, I know people are like, eh, the movie takes three hours, it takes three hours, it's like, well, nowadays, people think it takes three hours, but it should be an hour and 45, and they still make it three fucking hours, because they don't cut anything. So, like, seeing it an hour and 15, I was like, no, this, this movie, this movie's fast as fuck, and it it looks better than ever, even though it was SOV, it was remastered. It doesn't lose all those generational things. And I, I, cause I've never seen this thing look better. Never heard it sound better. Um, there's just so many iconic scenes too in here. Um, the looking through the the hole in the door, which I used in the 94 intro. I mean, it's cause it's one of my favorite shots. That was the poster. I, I, I always loved it. It was, a, just an amazing, amazing, amazing shot. Amazing idea. Um, and like I said, there's just so much cool shit in here and there's a graphic sex scene involving a gun. Let's see somebody else do that right uh, So, uh, I, I really love this one. It's short you get a slice you get a slice of this world and it's hell it really looks like hell it's fast paced it's violent um the special effects are really good for the time they're they're graphic they're intense um I love this movie. this is one of my favorite SOV movies. I wouldn't be surprised if it was on my top 10. It's going to make my top 10. I know it is. So there's just no way. As far as the special features are concerned, we got quite a bit. Brand new restoration of Director's Cut from the original Betacam SP Master Tape surf- supervised by Director Scooter McCray. Original 1994 VHS version. Audio commentary with Director Scooter McCray. Audio commentary with Director Scooter McRae and cinematographer Matthew Howe. Um, and their interview together is very funny. I enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, so what else? We Audio commentary with Director Scooter McCray. Cast member Stark Raven. Uh, Marina Del Rey. Daniel Johnson. And Robert Wells. God Still hates You, an interview with director Scooter McCray and cinematographer Michael Howe, hosted by Michael Gingold. No Scars to Hide, locations then and now feature at, hosted by Michael Gingold, The Loner. early short film by Scooter McCray with optional director's commentary. Vintage Scooter McCray, cable TV interview, archival, behind-the-scenes footage, slash blooper, blooper reel, vintage tour of the Shatter Dead house, and a trailer. So yeah, this is a great stuff here. Um, and I also should mention Scooter McCray appears in... Uh, Maybe my other favorite SOV movie ever made. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have spoken. He appears in Bloodletting, which may be my favorite, actually. This might be number two, but he appears in Bloodletting as a small, uh, small role in there as Boog. I I believe is it. <laughs> Your name is Booger? Boog. Uh, I, I think that's the line in there. Anyway, Shattered Dead. Huge fan. Uh, this is from Saturn's Core, which is also uh, put out um, the uh, mail tape murder documentary, which I loved, and they have a couple of those movies on there. Psycho Sisters out, and uh, I know they have another one, Duck the Carbine uh, uh, High School Massacre, which I should get around to watching as well. But Shattered Dead, get it. Also very cool slipcover, right? It kind of it's like the door. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love that this is on Blu-ray even though it's SOV. I used to make fun of like Blu-ray SO I'm like this is SOV on Blu-ray. And then like when they remaster it like this, I'm like, oh shit, this looks great for SOV. Um I mean if you remaster it right, I mean sometimes it's worth the upgrade, and I'm glad I have this. I'm super happy to see it on Blu-ray. It's one of my favorites. A personal favorite, you know what I mean? That kind of deal. I think you, hey, Sanger,
1: get in here now
0: huh. What? What is this? Zombie Bat 2, Rage of the Undead.
1: What? You ain't seen Zombie Bloodbath 2, Rage of the Undead? Nah, I guess I must have missed that one. You ain't seen nothing. You ain't seen nothing. i seen way more than you. Mm -hmm. You haven't seen Taxi Driver,
0: Goodfellas, Casino, Cannibal Holocaust, The Beginning, The Great Escape,
1: Kelly's Heroes, Once Upon a Time in the fucking West. You haven't seen War and Peace, Pink Flamingos. Casablanca, Gone with the Wind. Citizen Game. The Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas Special. You
0: haven't seen, hmm, what else haven't you seen? The Magnificent Seven? The Magnificent Seven right Again? The Magnificent Seven Are Back? Is that a movie? And last of all, you ain't seen Zombie Bloodbath 2, Rage of the Undead.
1: And you haven't seen War and Peace? I
0: ain't watching War and Peace. The hell you are. Fuck War and Peace. Alright guys, we're here for You Ain't Seen. This is your mm-hmm. pick. For me. Right. And this is, what, Little Nemo Adventures in Slumberland? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the full title. This is, what, 1989? hmm 1989. Mm-hmm, 1989. Uh, animated movie, um, Japanese. Japanese.
1: And American, American
0: co-production. Mm-hmm. And this is a Hemdale, Hemdale production, which is a company that I remember growing up seeing a lot from the video store and everything like that. Man, I wanna say uh Hemdale. Did they uh at one point own Return of Living Dead that was in Orion? I can't remember, but Hemdale's a, a very familiar company for me. So I guess uh I don't even know how to go about this. Um who who's the animator
1: on this one? I don't know. Was there it wasn't like a big name or something? No, it's, it's, I don't think it's like a well not for you. It's weird because it's a Japanese studio, um but with more like American like Script, um so it, yeah it's not like it's like a dom luth or like a Disney although yeah. a lot of uh, people that worked on it did work for Disney um but it's like all the production was done in Japan but the it, it was at like like the head of like American interest
0: okay so uh the plot of this one is there's a young boy who his parents don't seem to have much time for him as especially, especially his father. And the circus comes through, which cracked me up. Because when we were watching this, I saw Ray Bradbury, a story by, And then we had to pause it for something. And uh, no, no, it froze because that's what streaming happens. Sometimes <laughs> streaming is a piece of shit. It can be like that. So I'm more for physical media. But uh, we were watching this Amazon Prime had it streaming in HD. And um, when we paused it, we found our spot again. And I was like, what is this? Uh, uh, circus parade? And then not two seconds later... Uh, the kids were like, a circus parade! And I was like, is that even a real thing that people say it legitimately was a circus parade? Because I was like, oh, Ray Bradbury wrote it. It's probably got a fucking circus parade in it. And that's what I said. And then the kid was like, a circus parade! And I was like, wow. I mean, so Ray Bradbury immediately to me brings circus parade. Something <coughs> Wicked This Way Comes, which had the... Uh, the, the kind of infamous parade in the film that I grew up with and it it has that quality that Ray Bradbury quality which I like it's, it's kind of kid friendly but also it's dangerous and, and fantastical dark, and yeah. slightly dark um this is not nearly as dark as Halloween tree or something wicked this way it comes this is the fluffiest of the bunch but still scary mm-hmm. and like we were talking about we think this is a like a better version of Black Cauldron in a lot of
1: ways I mean there there are similarities yeah. um but yeah th- this is like, like the better version but like as far as like dark children's fantasy, I think that this is it's pretty fast. Bad. Um it it does take like a while to get going. Um like the first forty minutes is just like a bunch of like whimsical nonsense. Um it's based off a, a comic strip from like the nineteen twenties. Um and obviously they the nineteen twenty comic strips were just like single page, like or a few I originally thought it. it was
0: like the Nemo uh Captain Nemo thing. Uh
1: there is that um that sense of like yeah, the like the exploration aspect of Captain Nemo except it's little Nemo and it's, it's sort of like exploring like the sea or whatever he's exploring, you know,
0: airship or something along those lines. Kind of like the uh, Master of the World with Vincent Price and Charles Bronson. Well, but yeah, yeah, it,
1: it, I mean it is we said like the 1920s. We should
0: get the plot here. Yeah. uh the plot is <laughs> i don't even know the quote about it kind of a, uh i would say a very imaginative little kid has like a, what believes he goes in his dream world in slumberland and he kind of like flies on his bed and he ends up kind of being like inheriting like the king's key to this like the um kingdom of this like magical mystical slumberland and mm-hmm. uh due to like this lovable hobo and mickey rooney <laughs> they end up opening this door they're never supposed to kind of you know pandora's box or whatever it always happens and it unleashes uh what is his name in this the villain
1: the, oh the nightmare king
0: the nightmare king like i just had recently rewatched legend something in the darkness or he's one of these kind of bad guys he's terrifying and he has an army of goblins uh with him so basically, it's up to uh, Nemo to stop the Nightmare King and all the other goblins and ghouls and everything like that, with the help of a couple people from the kingdom. The hobo—is hobo even a proper term anymore? I would say the lovable tramp is probably what he's most kind of. He's like a schemer, but he's dressed like a lovable tramp. I he's mean,
1: you know, he, he's a hobo. He's, <laughs> he's flip. He's, he's a, as the movie puts it, a frightful fellow. A yeah, frightful fellow. <laughs> and also, the professor, who is uh,
0: Matt Hudson's like favorite actor voices that oh, renee uh renee uh, i always say his name
1: wrong uh, professor, up. professor genius yeah is he's, his name. he's in images and stuff like that
0: but uh yeah so uh, my favorite part literally was uh the villain was great but i oh, love the, the goblins. goblins like there was this sea creature goblins the bat goblins and then like mm-hmm. kind of like the uh the ones that can morph into different creatures and they're like kind of on the heroic side but i i really enjoyed this one and i'm mm-hmm. i'm any of the eighties fantasy stuff that is like uh kind of child oriented but uh usually it's the non disney stuff that I just kind of i prefer for some reason than the eighties Disney stuff, and I have no problem with the other eighties Disney stuff. it's just that maybe it's just less uh manufactured than the Disney stuff
1: well Disney stuff in the eighties was like, I always thought kind of weak um and so like I don't think that Disney like really like got good quote-unquote until like almost the 90s well i mean
0: like when does snow white those are super old right oh yeah but yeah i mean like if the real at like classics those, classic those disney, are kind of unmatched right yeah, yeah
1: so you, you have like classic disney which is like you know snow white up through like maybe like pinocchio then you have like bankrupt disney <laughs> which is for like everything from like i don't know like maybe mid-70s like, literally, like Little Mermaid, where they just like reuse a lot of animation. Um, Are you telling me that the Jungle Book and Robin Hood have the same characters with just different hats on in them? They, it's, it's more than just those two. <laughs> I mean, Robin Hood has what has uh, Jungle Book, Arista Snow White, um, you name it, it's in there. Um, they literally just like look at the cells and just put them in a different spot.
0: So, what did you think about this movie?
1: it's oh, a favorite oh yeah it's, it's one of my absolute favorites um, like I said it is slow to get going because I think the first first half of it it's, it's like set up it's there's a lot of just like weird dream sequences even before you ever get to circus parade like I said <laughs> the opening like 10 minutes is is Nemo dreaming and getting, like, you know, hunted down by a killer train, um. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, super Uh, fun. The animation is fantastic, um. The king's fantastic. I love the king. He's great. I I love love all the characters. You meet him at
0: the circus, but you also meet him at the train, which I love.
1: I love that whole scene. Then you find out, oh, it's King Morpheus. Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah, um, Brad Simpson's in this. She plays all the little. She does some voice work. Yeah, Dead Clown Girls, um. Mickey Rooney's pretty great in it. Yeah, Mickey Rooney, um, actually, yeah, he actually tries in this, I feel. What are you talking about, Mickey
0: Rooney not try. I've never seen a movie where Mickey Rooney didn't
1: try, to be honest. Even if the movie's but, not good. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's the thing. Like, I've seen Mickey Rooney try, but, you know, there's the thing is trying too hard sometimes. I think you're wrong. You're based on what you know about Mickey Rooney, uh, on that
0: Simpsons episode where he played, uh, what was it, Radioactive Boy? Radio,
1: uh, Fallout Boy. Fallout Boy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not wrong, though. No. Don't, don't drag Mickey Rooney's good name through the dirt. He, he did it himself. Um, <laughs> he did nothing. <laughs> no, he, no. I think he did fantastic in this. Um, it's very... Uh, Mickey Rooney? Wasn't he in Bates in Toyland? Or are asking the iteration guy. of guy. <laughs> but you know, so it's like, <laughs> I think, I think you, that there's similar...
0: I, that's the live action movie, right? With, yeah. Um, is Keanu in that? Winona Ryder or somebody like that? I haven't seen that movie since I was a little kid. That was one I would watch on television. That in like the 70s, or was it 70s version of Alice in Wonderland? The live action one. There was a real weird one that I saw when I was a kid. I remember a
1: German Alice in Wonderland. I thought that, that was that stop motion one. Alice, isn't wasn't isn't it? *Babes in Toyland* though? Not the not one not, not writer. I thought there was one like made in like the fifties or something. Probably. 60s. I, I've not seen that. I'm um, sure there is. It's Lincoln. just
0: you're, you're like uh, my like uh, comfort zone right now. Right, Yeah, <laughs> I know it's, it's weird. It's like, like I just like, don't. Know. Where
1: do I know Mickey Rooney from? I know Mickey
0: Rooney from uh, *Silent Night, Deadly Night 5. I, I know him more <laughs> in,
1: like like Judy Garland, and, and, and he's in that. Uh,
0: <laughs> he's in the. Um,
1: what is that real weird movie
0: where uh michael Caine's in it and he plays a mobster which is a very strange role for mickey rooney that sounds like a fun movie yeah i think um jeez what is that Al terry's in that movie too it's a strange film i believe it's michael that's a weird movie um yeah i don't really know what else to say about this movie like i said i really like the animation Mm -hmm. i like the baddie in it um it it was really creepy he's like one of these larger than life darker just figures I thought it had a very whimsical kind of approach to it. Oh, um, absolutely. It, it's very fun. It has a lot of, like, I guess nightmare fuel when you're kind of just floating in a bed in the middle mm. of uh, ocean and stuff. And So I really don't have anything too negative to say
1: about the movie. There is honestly. no negative about this movie, I think. Um, his pet flying squirrel, Icarus... Oh, I love him! ...is probably the best thing in the movie because, like, you know, he doesn't have, like, any dialogue per se, but he kind of, because he just makes squirrel noises, but sometimes it sounds like words, um, and you can tell what he's saying. Um. Yeah, he's just like actively swearing through the whole movie.
0: Yeah, he, he's kind of like Joe Pesci in Home Alone, where mm-hmm. you
1: don't understand what he's saying, but you know it's like wants to be cuss words. Right. He's like, <laughs> so um, you hear him say, like, like clear as day, like, I'm not a fucking rat. I mean, it, it's amazing. Yeah,
0: that's between him and the princess have arguments. Yeah. That's very cute. <laughs> um, So this is Creature Features John Stanley. This is actually in here Little Nemo Adventures in Slumberland.
1: 1992, they have it on here. The, so. Yeah, I think it was 89, but probably not released in America until 92. Okay. So, Windsor McKay's comic
0: strip <coughs> character, conceived for the screen by Ray Bradbury, is a superior example of Japanese animation, with a youthful ye- Nemo being carried off to Slumberland to be a playmate of Princess Camille, daughter of King Morpheus. The Chris Columbus uh, Richard Outen script was directed by Hato, or Hata. And William T Hertz voiced by Gabrielle Damon Mickey Rooney Renee Arbor Joe I never say his name right he gave it three out of five I mean he, he seemed to be very positive about it yet gives it a three out of five which shows me that he probably just doesn't really care for much for animation which is fine
1: I mean yeah I mean animation isn't for everyone clearly it's my favorite thing on the planet um, to me it's it, it's my five-star movie it's been one of my favorite movies since I was a kid um, to the point where like I want to know. I want to consume more Nemo. Like I played the Nintendo game. I tried reading the comic strips, but don't. They're, but they're probably fine. I've They're all, They're all right. It's just you know when when you're on like a when you're watching the movie and you have like a fun adventure and you're finding a nightmare king and then you watch or then you read like the comic strips that were literally made in the 1920s and it's like there's a video game. What what system did you say? From Nintendo. Oh, normal Nintendo, based off the movie. Based off the movie, um, it's be made by Capcom and it's like a. It's like a Kirby game okay. style. Like like you, you're you, Nemo? You, you're Nemo and you charm enemies and then you can like ride the enemies and then they all have different like powers. Do you remember you Tailspin,
0: do. the video game?
1: For yeah. Sega? Not, no, not, I played Tailspin on my Nintendo. Tailspin, same same game, I'm sure, for Super Nintendo. and uh, No, I'm talking like regular Nintendo. Maybe like, it
0: was for regular Nintendo. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure there was a Sega version. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: I mean, Se- Se- Sega seems like it would be too late for... The well, Tailspin for, was awesome. Tailspin was awesome don't get me wrong but like Tailspin was like early like late 80s early 90s By the time i'm was 107 a i can't remember so
0: i, I would give this four <laughs> out of five for like an animated film i enjoyed it quite a bit i don't really have any complaints about it
1: um no five out of five you love it i, I do love it i don't it's think you convinced me it was a five out of five i don't have to convince you one oh, you're a damn fool you're not trying to convince me no, I'm not trying to convince... Why would I try to convince you? I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so it's my pick next week. Yeah. Don't um, pick Stephen King. He hates Stephen King. I, I, I don't him. ever want to watch Stephen King. Just bullshit artists. If, if you pick Stephen King, we're watching Joel Schumacher's Phantom. Oh, I can't yeah. watch that movie. Exactly. Uh, and I, I can get even worse, too. No, I don't want
0: to watch fucking The Phantom of the Opera by Joel Schumacher. That's the only Phantom movie I won't watch. <laughs> um... I don't know I saw like part of it and I was just like, like what's going on I gasped in horror didn't I it was yeah. so terrible to me oh like, it's, I could, it's, it's wretched ugh. and I don't even hate Joel Schumacher I, I drew <laughs> up uh, Lost Boys for a Patreon pick I love the Lost Boys I don't even hate Falling Down I wouldn't even say I hate Batman Forever or the Batman or Robin I mean I don't think they're great or anything but I, Joel Schumacher I just do not fucking like that movie from what I saw I just can't do it um Maybe I should go back to the Universals and we could do Hunchback of Notre Dame or Notre Dame or whatever. Or 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 I was thinking about doing one of the nineteen ninety four movies that you haven't seen. And I don't know which one I would do.
1: There's that anime looking one
0: I- Hey, yeah, yeah. it has to be you I'm not gonna give you that. I would have to pick a different one, like a heavy hitter. That's Why? what I do. Like it's either gonna have to be interview with a vampire. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Wolf. I- I'll make, I'll make you pick Interview of the Vampire. <laughs>
1: no, you can't do that. <laughs> I've never seen it.
0: Or Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which are all three movies that kind of are throwbacks to, like, universal old-school horror. I don't know Wolf. I kind of want to watch Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> I know
1: I never liked it, but I want to give it a fair shake on oh. this one. Oh. See, Interview of a Vampire, I always wanted to watch. We're, we'll get. I'll, I'll pick it eventually. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein... It was a follow up because Bram Stoker's Dracula yeah. did fairly well. So
0: then they were like, let's do this one. And he produced it, but he didn't direct it. And it just, I don't remember it being very lo- good. Was Bram Stoker's Dracula like before 94? It was 92. Seriously? Yeah, and then 94 was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I same just. With Wolf, in with Vampires. So it looked like we have like kind of a throwback to it.
1: Oh, what the hell? I always thought that the Dracula was in like more mid 90s. No. Um. I don't remember. I know I've seen the Dracula. I've never seen uh, the Frankenstein except clips and pieces. It looks like like Robert De Niro's version of Frankenstein it looks like a nuclear burn victim. Well,
0: I mean, that's how the Frankenstein monster was kind of described. He wasn't described as this bolt necked creature, he was just bits of pieces. You know what I mean? He, he... should
1: look like a bolt necked creature. He should look, I mean, yeah. He should look like Bela Lugosi. <laughs>
0: it's Boris Karloff. <laughs> Although. To be fair, Bell Lugosi did play Frankenstein's Monster once. Oh, he did? Yeah. Oh. Well,
1: why don't we watch The original, that? I
0: guess, he didn't want to play Frankenstein's Monster in the original Frankenstein. He's like, no one's going to recognize me. And then I guess he went ahead and did it later in one of the sequels. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Joe Dante was telling the story. He's like, eh, hey, no one recognized him. So it's yeah. <laughs> <yeah, that's laughs> like. Um, but I mean, people I mean, remember Boris Karloff. Yeah. Mm. and Bela Lugosi yeah. always be Dracula Boris Karloff always be Frankenstein right. Long Chaney will always be the Wolf Long Chaney Senior junior, will always be the Wolfman even though they all kind of played different monsters and shit Boris Karloff also mm. played the mommy Bell Lagosi also played Frankenstein once Long Chaney played Long Chaney Junior played Wolfman he played I think he's just a Frankenstein monster and goes to Frankenstein I want to say and then he was even fucking so are we son Dracula. Mary Shelley we're going to do Mary Shelley's Frankenstein
1: Mary Sorry. Shelley's Frankenstein oh. so I guess that is going to be uh, next week Next week, so. two and a half hours of Robert De Niro. Be like, right? <laughs> now, now, now we're both going to be mad. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> oh god, I can't. Not, not De Niro. We're done. Bye. De Niro's the best.
0: Okay. Let's get into these questions, comments, concerns, all that good stuff. So uh, last week I asked you the weirdest or wildest movie you saw based on a true crime. So we have The Maniac. Weirdest movie based on a true story would have to be Cannibal the Musical, based on America's first convicted cannibal. Have a spadoinkled day, my friend. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I love that movie. Uh, Spray Doinkle. Um Big fan of Cannibal the Musical. Uh, that one gets better at reviewing, too. Chet Turner, thanks for the definition. He basically asked what I would define an exploitation movie. That's, like, such a weird question to me. It's like, it's hard to explain. Like, it is. It's an exploitation of a certain subject in, in movies, whatever. Travis Litscomb. Hey, Dave. I've been participating in the conversation. Uh, I haven't been participating in the conversation or throwing any Patreon pics, but I do love watching every week. I usually watch in the morning at work, so I forget to go back and comment after. Anyway, I enjoyed both those Mondo Releases a lot too. I noticed the connection to Seven Women for Satan too, and also another movie, another Mondo release, not na Paul Nashy's Panic Beats, opens with the same type of thing. Mondo is becoming my favorite label, and I feel like people are sleeping on them. I love this underseen Euro cult they put out. Yeah, and I love Mondo because it's. I, and I don't want to. This is not a hit on any other label. Mondo is putting out shit that no one else is putting a Blu-ray out of for a lot of times. This is the first time these movies have been available in HD at all. Um, Jason Bovey, at 131, rebrainwashed question mark? Holy shit. So she was brainwashed twice? Just kidding. I know you meant de brainwashed or deprogrammed, but I couldn't help busting some balls. And if you watch Angel Dust, it's very strange that the, the kind of scientist in the movie who is brainwashing these people a second time, he calls it rebrainwash. It's like a weird term or something like that in the movie. So I know it seems like a typical Mr. Parker mistake or a joke, but no. Uh, the character kind of refers to it as rebrainwash because he believes we we're originally brainwashed in life in general in society, and you know I guess we're all brainwashed to a certain extent in society, you know one way or the some deal or something like that. Um, so like, uh, so he says I'm rebrainwashing them from their, you know, back to what they were before. So rebrainwash is what he refers it to. So, uh, yeah. Then what else do we have here? Nick Moore, first things first. Would those Mr. Parker coffee mugs be available for purchase this Christmas? No, but I will have them for New Year's. Just kidding. I think I mentioned these before, uh, but An American Crime and Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door. Both these grueling flicks are based on the murder of Sylvia uh, Likens in October of 1965. Speaking of Mr. Ketchum, his his, uh, other excellent book, The Lost, and its uh, subsequent film adaptation were inspired by multiple murders committed by Charles Smitty... uh, Uh, Schmidt, uh, a.k.a. the Pied Piper of Tucson, the stuff of nightmares for sure. Lastly, Cruel Summer in 2016 British film, somewhat inspired by the ghastly murder of Terry Lee Hurst, a boy with slight learning uh, difficulties. The poor kid was set uh, upon by a trio of friends and stabbed about 80 times. I'm not sure what's more horrifying, this brutal murder or the fact that this isn't out of the ordinary anymore. No shit. Um, As far as The Lost is concerned, I've read the book, The Lost, and watched the movie a few times, and I've always loved that movie and the book. Um, The Girl Next Door is a movie that I just don't like anymore. I just without the the narration from the character the inner monologues it just doesn't make any sense to me and i know people are like well you can it just doesn't work um at all really and i just feel like it just it, it gets off on being cruel but doesn't have the the point that the original i meant that the book makes so i don't know i'm uh, sorry to say that but so we have questions or I did to watch that other one, cruel summer though. And I never watched an American crime, which I should definitely watch because I hear that's more uh, fateful to the real thing. As far as I had heard about the uh, Charles Smitty character Schmidt uh, from that, that case the Tucson, the Pied Piper of Tucson. And I know that he died fairly terribly in prison. Uh, but that song that uh, Jack Ketchum uses, I'm the Pied Piper or not him, but the director that uses, I always liked quite a bit um, that opening the lost are there some, some stories so horrible that they should never be adapted for the silver screen as so as not to exploit someone's suffering? I think there's a time frame, like, where you really shouldn't make the movie in a time frame or something like that, or the way you handle it. Um, I remember bringing up the Chicago Ripper Crew to Joe Rubin and said there's never been a movie on that. I'm thinking back on that. It's like, probably shouldn't have a Chicago Ripper Crew movie. Just the exploits of those crimes are so rough and stuff like that that I don't know if it should be a movie. Um uh, maybe not, maybe just by the detective's point of view, but I would not be able to handle a Henry-style Chicago Ripper movie case. Um, or even a, a Dean Coral Candyman case, to be honest. I mean, then again, they do stuff like Bundy and Dahmer and Gacy, and they don't show you all the real nasty details because they want to keep it somewhat mainstream for everybody, I guess, which is fucking weird. But I don't I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's tough. Would you defend yourself if you were in the Hills Have Eyes type situation, even if your attackers were feral children? If my family was at risk... Yeah, I'd do anything to keep them alive. Anything. Uh, So yeah, I would. Um, The feral children, I mean, are they... uh, I'd do whatever it takes to keep my family alive. Um, Why won't the lazy idea that cinematic violence leads to actual violence die? Um, I don't know. It's weird though, you know, like... (laughs) sick people will take anything like that and, and be affected by it. You know, if that makes any sense. So it's just like, I don't know. I need to focus on a lot. We got a lot of problems in society everywhere. It's a, it never seems to change. It just seems to adapt and evolve the, the problems in certain ways. And maybe sometimes they don't even change, but I don't know. I just don't know. Maybe it's an easy, uh, it's an easy way out, you know. Hey, blame the music, blame the games, blame the movies, instead of just blaming human nature or society in general, or the lack of people giving a shit about stuff like that. You know, if you blame, point the finger at a movie, we can get that movie banned. But if you point the finger at mental illness or how uh, things are treated or how the... meta, You know, it's a lot harder to fix. So why just point your finger at something temporarily or something easier to get rid of than actually focus on the real issue here scapegoating scapegoating is the america's favorite thing and, and probably the world's favorite thing to do scapegoat you know what it's kind of like putting blacktop on a cracked road you know uh instead of tearing it out and putting concrete in. it's quicker hey it's gonna crack again eventually but fuck it this will take care of it for five minutes instead of fixing it forever Not the bad mouth asphalt, but my, my dad used to run his own concrete business. So I did concrete work. So I was a concrete guy. I was like, when they see blacktop, you're like, you don't want it. You don't want the blacktop. You want the concrete. So that's just a a thing that I have embedded in my soul. Um, Brian Sattler, on the Tarantino thing, you could say the same for Eli Roth. Like, basically, you know, I was talking about somebody said they didn't like Tarantino because they saw that he was riffing on movies that they seen previously, and I thought that was kind of a weird thing not to like somebody, but hey, it is what they, they, they want to do, so it's them. Um, but I, I would say it's a little bit different on Eli Roth. I never disliked Eli Roth for... I never got the that he was just blatantly ripping movies off. I know he stole like stole shots just like everybody else. That's kind of a weird thing to hate on him for, right? I just I don't hate Eli Roth either. But the stuff I didn't like about Eli Roth's movies is that the ones I didn't like were just shitty. (laughs) Like Green Inferno is just a piece of shit. Like, I'm sorry. It's just, it doesn't understand what it's going for. And if it does, it just doesn't come across in the movie. So like I never, I, I, maybe somebody else has uh, hated Eli Roth for just saying he ripped off movies, even though he's paying homage. Cause I don't see Eli Roth is even really, I mean, he pays homage and he loves movies, but I don't see his, his movies being like hated on it because of that. I see a lot of people just hating on Eli Roth because who Eli Roth is. A lot of people hate on Eli Roth just because who he is. They're like, well, I don't like it. He comes off as a bro or something like that. And that's kind of weird too. Um, but I just don't like green infernals. The only movie he made that I was like, I hate this. I hate this movie a lot. I think it's a terrible movie, but I never disliked it for being inspired by the things I love. If anything, that might be the only saving grace about it. Um, But uh, I I see what you're saying there, though. And then we have David Scott. Good to see a brief cat cameo. I do like the song choice for the 1994 video, Zombie, and it suits the horror genre. there was another choice of song to use, then I think Black Hole Sun from Soundgarden would have worked quite well as well. Maybe. Um, I'm not a huge fan of that song. I I don't. I'm not a big fan. I'm not saying it's a bad song. It's just totally, it's one of those songs I heard a million times, and it just is like, I don't ever want to hear this again and zombies is a song I heard a million times and I'm like, keep playing it, keep playing it. So it's one of those ones that like, also I think, uh, you could probably edit to, Um, and it has the slow build that you could work to with black hole sun. And then when the chorus it's, you could, you could definitely use that song. Um, and it has a dark element to it. So yeah, it, it would definitely be working. I, I would have to lay the song in the uh, editing bay and just start seeing how it works and how it starts off. It has that like in the very beginning. Yeah. I think that song would work. I think I could do that. Um, And, uh, maybe it's just because I did zombie that I'm just constantly thinking of zombie or fast-paced. So, yeah, I would just have to slow down the clips I use, Kind of like when I did, uh, the 1970, I, uh, you know, I did something else, and then the 85, I wanted it really fast-paced because I used Claudio Simonetti for the cut-and-run theme, so. Ilk Vomit. I absolutely love Night of the Demons, too. My nostalgia and love for it goes back to the VHS days and going to my local video store. It was one of those deals where they never had the VHS of Night of the Demons, but they had the empty box out in the aisle to let you know that they did have it, but the tape was always gone so i always rented part two and rented, and rented it and rented it and rented it and became obsessed with it for a good while i thought the bad girl with the black hair was the hottest chick on the planet back in the day lol but yeah i absolutely love night of the demons part two and wasn't uh until way later like until the anchor bay dvd came out that i finally became acquainted uh, acquainted with part one as it since i love them both equally now and yeah part three isn't that good i can see what you mean part two it's a movie I should like. Like I like Chud 2 for all, for crying out loud. So it's like, "Dave, Chud 2 is okay for you, but Night of the Demons 2 is too it, is, it just doesn't follow the tone enough." It's like, "Yeah, but I love Night of the Demons one. I don't love Chud one. Like I love Night. Of, I whatever. But I understand why people love Night of the Demons 2. And you're not the only one. i I might be the minority that dislikes. I don't know. It's probably 50-50 on that one. I I uh yeah, at the video store there was one like that for me. They always had Troll one. I loved Troll 1 as a kid because, you know, it's a PG-13, PG horror film that I could rent. So I rented it a million times at age 5, 6, 7. And they had Troll 2 sit next to it, and it was always gone. And I wanted to see Troll 2 because it has that cool VHS cover with like the creature, like hunched like that, and like the green door, the silhouette. And I'm like, Troll 2 looks awesome. So you can imagine when I finally did see Troll 2, <laughs> I was
1: like, what the fuck is this?
0: Um, yeah, I probably ran it from another video store. I don't think I ever hated Troll 2. I just was like, this is, I don't even know what I initially thought when I saw Troll 2. I just probably was like, that's okay. As a little kid. Um, but I did, did go to a different video store. But that, there always is that one. Ghoulies 2 was another one that was always gone from my video store. Ghoulies 2 tape was never there and then eventually i saw ghoulies 2 from a different video store young though still young 10 11 and i loved it i will love ghoulies 2 ever since so then we have the horde garden i follow up to your update with the book of sleazoid express by bill landis and michelle clifford did you see there is a biography of uh bill landis by preston fallis due out on uh december 7th no i have not it may have been uh more complete had michelle done it but i'll take it wish she would do uh audio biography as well very cool thanks for the info coffee is my friend it's the only drug i am hooked on is caffeine Isimisio. i dare you to read about the junco uh furrada uh furuta and everything that happened to her then watch the movie concrete 2004 i heard of concrete i know of it i just never had the guts to watch it um one of the worst crimes i've ever read Made me sick to my stomach, and that's saying a lot. Glad to hear you liked Angel Dust. I still haven't uh, seen Last Night in Soho and look forward to it. Need to see Antlers as well. I think in terms of heavy hitters in 2021, 20, Soho is the only one I have left. The Wicker Man is a classic, and although there are similarities, Midsommar pales in comparison. I think the movie you were you were stuck on that had the depressing aesthetic similar to Hereditary and so many other movies in recent years is The Dark and the Wicked, which is just okay. Great update as always. I was actually thinking of The Relic. Um, dark and the wicked. I don't love, I know a lot of people love it. I just don't care for it very much. I don't hate it. I think it's a good movie. It's just not my thing. The relic is the one I was thinking of the, uh, depressing, like, uh, timers kind of house thing where like the, the pass on the hereditary deal. It's the relic. I believe it's called the relic is, am I mistaken there? Um, but yeah, that one's pretty good um david leather i'm 65 and having spent the 70s and good portion of the 80s in the grindhouses on hollywood boulevard watching many euro trash epics i thought i'd seen everything but every week you give me uh, info on new films thank you no thank you i've not seen everything either but it's always exciting to check out a new movie Horse Cinema. Yes, 100% agree. I love Burial Ground. I remember running this uh, around 1986. Good times. I think I probably rented Burial Ground closer to 96 when I was a kid. Um, maybe 98 is when I first saw that one, because I was probably 10, 12, and I was obsessed with zombies, and it was just at the video store. Seeing uh, Gates of Hell, Burial Ground, and Hell of the Living Dead, aka Night of the Zombies, they all had like a similar cover with a zombie. And in fact, Night of the Zombies and The Gates of Hell had like the same fucking zombie that they just ripped off the front, put on the cover. Very similar ripoff covers. And all three of those movies I saw were around the same time and was, uh, I love all those. Uh, I'm Re4560. The Slezoid Express book is brilliant. And Glen Plain, 1994. Uh, uh Glen Plain, 1994, looking quite rapey so far. Uh, yeah. Yeah so basically I, I, we start talking back and forth and it's just like, seem like every Hong Kong movie at the time had rape in it in the nineties. Like I, I always make a master list and I always focus on a lot of Asian movies and like I'm putting the Hong Kong movies on there and the titles and I'm just like almost every movie for Hong Kong movie from 1994 seems to have some sort of rape element to it. Um, we have Ken Coakley. I agree with you wholeheartedly about The Wicker Man. I loved it. I was lucky enough to see it thrice at the local cinema. All three times it was the extended cut, which I prefer. For one thing, they included The Gently Johnny, written by musical genius in my own, uh, Jigajalo, whatever that is, New York, uh, Paul Giovanni who was tragically a victim to the AIDS epidemic of the 80s, so I could never see him at a convention to personally congratulate on a job well done. I also prefer the extended cut because Willow's Song is later in the movie. I wrote an earlier post that was, in my opinion, that she did it to save Howie's life. Uh, It seemed that way because of them holding off until the near end. Another thing that I just noticed, uh, just started to notice, was Christopher Lee practicing doing ballet moves before putting on his costume. Originally, Peter Cushing was supposed to play Howie, but Edward Woodward got the role instead. I couldn't imagine anyone else playing Howie, Lord Summerisle, or Willow. Me either. Um, I love Peter Cushing, but Edward Woodward is made for that role. Like he's so perfect. Like I could see Lee uh, Cushing being step tight, but he's he looks too old to me for that. I know I know Edward Woodward's not a spring chicken, but he fits the role. He feels like a cop. He feels like that. He just feels right. He's perfect for the role. Um I I don't know if I agree that she was trying to save him. She was definitely trying to test him. I think that they needed someone who wouldn't fall to the who wouldn't break, if that makes any sense. But if she if he would have came up to her, I guarantee she would have been down. She might have enjoyed it. I don't know. It's strange. It's it's it, 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 it it's it's uh, I can't, you know, it's not like I can prove it. Like, you know what I mean? So, um, then we have, a ri- he also mentions, I have two movies that are based on true events with similar themes. One is The Amityville Horror, which was scary enough as a piece of Hollywood history, but the real goings on and what happened since are scarier. The daughter never appeared to talk about the experience, but the oldest son, Daniel, was the subject of a documentary called My Amityville Horror. He looked like he had been through the uh, ringer. The viewer can tell that he has been if not, still on drugs and all sorts of chemicals. One can't help but figure something really bad happened to him. He claims to have hated George, who Daniel blamed for the whole thing. Daniel also claims that he and George had to be exercised after the family moved to California. I need to watch my Amityville horror. The other son, Christopher, did a couple of shows but tried to avoid talking about it. He also hated George and changed his last name to his original name as George was their stepfather. Like Daniel, he sounds like he was scarred for life. They both blame George who, along with Kathy, practiced trans-dental uh, meditation and instead of chanting the names of saints, chanted devil's names. Very strange. Another movie based on a real story was *The Exorcism Emily Rose*. Like *Amityville*, the truth is more shocking. I saw videos here on YouTube showing the exorcism pics and audio recordings. I really regret seeing those videos. The movie was based on a case in Germany where a young woman named uh, and Michelle was allegedly possessed. Another hearing uh, after hearing the audio, I slept with the lights on for months. The sounds she made are sounds I never heard before or since. Whether it was demonic possession, mental health issues, whatever, turned uh, a beautiful young woman into something I can't describe. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it's a good movie. But yeah, I had the weird feelings about it. I feel like they, the movie tries to, it takes, it, it does so well at not taking a stance on it, and then like at the very like the third act, it kind of does this whole deal where it's like portraying her as a martyr or dying for a cause, and it's just like, well, she had mental illness possibly, and it's just like, it just comes across tasteless to me. And I never, it's a good movie that I don't like, if that makes sense. And it just comes across tasteless. And then we have Mike Malloy, uh, in Broad Daylight, nineteen ninety one TV movie. Jeff Keith Blackout 1987. Is that the uh, Keith Carradine one? Um, or is that a different one? They'll no, Blackout someone the with the lights. I'm not sure if I've seen that one. And then uh, basically, um, he posts a link that says how a horror movie helped solve the real life murder. Sounds interesting. Tim Walker The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Classic. Uh, Rod leib The Zodiac. Classic. Good movie. Shazeen Barbarian The Entity. Tom Stein, Snowdown or Bully? Snowtown and Bully are uh, both great movies. Love Bully. John Solway, both some serious darkness right there, replying to that. Peter England, The Texas Chancel Massacre, Midnight Express, Henry Portion of a Serie Killer, River's Edge, Goodfellas, all great movies. Uh, Tony Phillips, Junkin, just the title alone is gold. Her final fury, uh, Betty Broderick, The Last Chapter. Rebecca Reinhardt, The Girl Next Door, or An American Crime if you want an actual retelling. Uh, Cassidy Botwin, are, uh, both extremely disturbing as, as are the books, such an insane and sad story. Ab- uh, Abigail Dagon, Party Monster, and uh, Ca- uh, Cassidy uh, Botwin agrees. Uh, uh, Sean Savage, uh, Pain and Gain, Carlos Lopez Jr., Cannibal, Bizarre Bizarre, The Strange Case of a Serial Killer, Bob Bardella. I've always been. I, I should definitely watch that one. Bomb Berndella is a sick motherfucker. And then he says, "Oh, I looked at uh, Viggo uh, Aro uh, Arro Mind of a Killer recently. Intriguing content. Um, Viggo Ranga is an underrated director. Man, he's got so many interesting movies. Uh, good, good stuff. That one I definitely want to watch. Um, then we have uh, Damien uh, McConney." Uh, is that uh, Mc, uh, McConaughey, uh, Heavenly Creatures, Belinda McKay, Stepfather 3. They even include a pic of John List. I didn't know that was based on True Incident, The Stepfather 3. Lacey Lube, uh, I haven't seen that one, but I had no idea that it was based on that, uh, she replies. Me either. So, uh, Barry O'Connell, Once About Time in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, it has the true story elements in there, true crime elements in there. Crazy. It is crazy, too, because it doesn't follow the st- <laughs> Yeah. Uh Troy Escamilla, if you don't mind a documentary, the imposter is a must. Ashley Marie Short, Masterminds is based on a true story. The criminal even helped make it. Not so much Wild, but I think it's weird considering it's a comedy and seems very outlandish. Lydia Manson, Bully. I love Bully. Uh, Barry O'Connell, The Manson Family, A.K.S. Charlie Family by Jim Van Bever. One of my favorites. David Luton, not particularly wild, but two true crime TV movies. I always liked Fatal Vision, 94, starring the great Gary Cole as Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, and The Executioner's Song, starring Tommy Lee Jones as Gary Gilmore, a killer who lobbied for his own execution to be carried out. Nathan Thomas M- Meliner, Compliance is based on a local story and one that my former supervisor went to prison for. Oh, shit. Chris Mayo, Bully and Marian Doris Cannibal, for sure. Nathan Thomas Maliner, Bully is a good one. Masterminds, I, Tonya i tonya tanya sorry Lacey Lou, a woman scorn. the betty broderick story that's the second one that came up it's actually a two-parter lo with meredith baxter and the mom from family dies it was pretty crazy to see her in this uh andre scott not really what i would call wild but death of a centerfold the tv movie with jamie lee curtis about the playboy playmate dorothy stratton is that the the one that uh studio is that what is that one can't think. Star 80 is based on, I think. Uh, Daniel Dutella, American Animals. Dylan Young, The Untold Story. And Climax. Matthew Hudson, the one about the hit ordered by a Texas mother so her daughter could make the cheerleading squad. Can't recall the name. Well, that doesn't help me. Jamal Potter, first one that comes to mind is extremely obvious, but it must be said, Bronson. Uh, Brad Skies, The Sadist. Dustin Mills, Bernie, underrated movie about what happens when a beloved community member commits a crime against a universally despised person. That sounds interesting. Uh, John Nix. I think uh, Kuminko, The Treasure Hunter, counts. I'm not familiar with the film. Uh, Chuck Swearing, uh, Tiger King, Casey Botwin, Wonderland. I'm missing a one sheet here. What do we got? Okay. Casey, uh, Casey bottom also goes on Cassidy. Sorry. Uh, at, also at close range, I live not too far from the real town in PA and they hated the film because those dudes really terrorized them and they felt it glamorized the killers, which makes me wonder if they watched a different film. Uh, yeah, I love at close range. That movie so good. Great cast. And then Jamal Potter, uh, wasn't river's edge based on a true story as well. I believe it was uh, according to some of the people here. Uh, John Soloway. To be fair, it does make the Whitworth gang look pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know. Kevin Keegan. Memories of Murder and the Chaser. Derek B. Of course, Coldfish and Chopper. Love Coldfish. John Soloway. Cannibal. Jay Renella, Pain and Gain. Human Pork Chop. Men Behind the Sun if you count war crimes. Why not? Rye Guy. 10 Rillington Place. Summer of Sam. Deranged. Monster. Town the Dreaded Sundown. Jason Driver. All Night Long 2. Didn't know those based on a true story. I need to watch those. Those movies look nuts. And then he also says Snowtown and Hounds of Love. Brett Belston Duck and Christian Michelson Michelson Concrete from 2004. That's the second time that one's been brought up. So here we're going to go. Since I've been talking about a lot of uh, crazy Euro horror movies that were released on Blu-ray and a lot of people didn't even know they existed, myself included, before that. So the question of the week is, One horror film made before 2000 you never heard of until it got a Blu-ray release. So one horror movie that um, was... um, Made before 2000, that never got a Blu ray release that you didn't hear of, that you didn't hear about until it got a Blu ray release. There we go, that's correct. So, I guess we're gonna hop into the Patreon drawing. I don't have any movies that I got this week, no, no update. I've saved it from Black Friday. I did buy 12 Angry Men, but that one I I reviewed, so I showed it there. So, basically, I only bought one movie this week, which is crazy. That never happens. It's the first time for everything. We're gonna hop into that Patreon draw, right? Okay, guys, so. Derek let me know that he hadn't been drawn out for like five drawings or so, so he went ahead and he got to pick one. Let me know guys too, if that happens to you, just let me know, I'll I'll throw you guys in, throw one of your picks in, or do a pick whatever, whatever you guys want to do. So Derek picked Goku the Body Snatcher, so yep, that was one. I'm gonna draw out four more. Let's see. Try to mix it up here, what we get. What do we have here? Eau Claire, Lost Boys, which I have absolutely no problem watching that. That's one I've always loved, so that's two. What do we have at three here? We have John Wilhelm, Any Vinegar Syndrome You Ain't Seen, which I love, and I love how I'm saying ain't now instead of you haven't. (laughs) Uh, What do we got here? We got another one, Jason Willard, The Chicago Seven, which I think is a newer film. I believe it's on Netflix. And then one more to go dig in deep here whatever this one is this is chris rivers casablanca which is a classic movie i also have no problem watching so uh so with a five we got are the chicago seven by jason willard casablanca by chris rivers we have Eau Claire, The Lost Boys. That is a wild, a wild a crazy mixture. John Wilhelm, Any Vigna Syndrome You Ain't Seen or You Haven't Seen. And last, Derek B. Goku, The Body Snatcher, which all all these movies, I, I've seen The Lost Boys, of course. Uh, the rest of them, I don't think I've seen. Uh, so that's really cool. Anyways, we're going to hop back to the video. All right, guys. Thank you very much for watching. And as always, have a good one.
1: Hey. ready no no actually not at all what do you mean well I want to check out something what do you want to check out uh... are you trying to make
0: bloopers now I feel like you're just no to no I, I
1: actually wonder to... <laughs> like like, I want to
0: be funny I'm gonna make a blooper